Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, aka the Bizzle, and welcome to the Mega Matrix Retrospective Spectacular with my good buddy Adam Tuck, who was on with me, Bizzlecast 12, to uh, launch my Lord of the Rings series with a retrospective about Lord of the Rings movies and books and all things nerd when it comes to Tolkien. After that podcast, Bizzlecast 12, I went on to launch all three commentaries for the Lord of the Rings movies. Went great, been getting good feedback, glad people are enjoying it. And so Mr. Tuck has agreed to return to launch my next series, which is about The Matrix. One of my favorite movies ever, possibly my favorite movie. Um, You know, Braveheart's up there, Lord of the Rings. Uh, You know, it depends on the day. Sometimes I'll say talented Mr. Ripley. But there is no argument that The Matrix changed popular culture and film culture forever and uh, we are thrilled to have tuck back today who's going to walk us through the first movie and that's going to launch us into discussions about the other movies the animatrix and of course the big super heady philosophical ideas so get ready for some super headiness and here we go people i'm here with my buddy adam tuck who is back for more punishments with the bizzlecast he's a glutton for punishment adam was here um for bizzlecast 12 just a sh- few short weeks ago and somehow we are in bizzlecast 18 which is great been doing audio commentaries people seem to be listening to them and enjoying them thank you bizzlecast listeners for listening to me talk for like four hours at a time per lord of the rings movie i certainly love doing it Get great pleasure out of other people um, uh, just enjoying the movie, hopefully enjoying the, the podcast a little bit. But uh, Tucker and I did the s- sort of lead-in intro um, Lord of the Rings podcast, and we might actually do a closing one at some point talking more about the historical and cultural context behind Tolkien's ideas and writings and stuff like that, and you know, how he was informed by the war and industrialization and environmentalism and, you know, European notions of the other and very, you know, college kind of uh, topics, but still very accessible. Today, we are going to talk about The Matrix. And when I said The Matrix, we're going to talk about the first movie, primarily, at least to begin with, but we're going to be talking about the whole series, which includes two uh, sequels, Reloaded and Revolutions, but also uh, another property that most people don't know about that I think Adam likes as well, which is the Animatrix, which are nine short anime-style, you know, animated uh, short stories based in or around The Matrix. Some of them are historical. Some of them are of people in the Matrix who can sort of sense the Matrix in various ways, but don't know what they're sensing and can't fully realize and escape. And then there's some of uh, outside the Matrix of various, uh, you know, rebels uh, who are trying to, to take down machines and really just sort of address philosophical issues that the movies don't have time for or didn't want to deal with. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, tough. A, it's a series of vignettes. It's, uh, it's lovely. It's a lovely thing. Go watch that if you haven't. That's probably the one thing that most people haven't seen. Probably everyone's seen all three of the Matrix movies, but Animatrix is pretty fucking great. 
Yeah, and, and, and this will be a good way to jump into the first movies with the timeline. So, the first Matrix came out 1999. I've been posting a lot on Facebook about 1999 in film as the, probably the greatest year of film. Certainly in my really? lifetime. Yeah. What else um, came out in 1999? Fight Club, Talented Mr. Ripley, Being John Malkovich. Oh, that um, was a great movie. Magnolia, American Beauty, Election, uh, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Sure. Uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, I hated that Stanley. movie. I did too, but it was still Stanley Kubrick's last movie, which is significant, mm. I would say. That's a pretty that's a pretty baller year. You're right. We also ha- you also have Sixth Sense. You have oh, wow. Star Wars Episode One. You wow. have South Park movie. You have <laughs> Office Space. Okay, all right. Come on, South Park and Office Space. Those are two. Office great Space comments. is huge. No, Office Space should have been top of the list. Toy Story Two. Oh God, um, that was great. What I'm trying to do is show you that there's a combination of very critically acclaimed works, big budget movies. And like you know, pretty classic comedies. But back, but when you go serious, you got the Thin Red Line, Rushmore, which is still one of my favorite oh, movies Jesus. ever. Matrix came out in thirty first of March of that year. Um, Man on the Moon came out that year. It was a good movie too. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. Yeah. And on. Point, point being, it was a point it was being, a baller year. It was a baller year, and. You know, I'm not even through July. You guys can look just Wiki 1999 and film on uh, on Wikipedia. It's pretty amazing. But despite all of that, Matrix coming out of nowhere with a 65 million dollar budget, which seems like nothing by today's standards, it really is nothing. I mean, they yeah. could never make that movie now with that much money. But for two weirdo brothers who really had nothing to their name. That Joel Silver and uh, the peeps at Fox would give them, uh, you know, or sorry, not Fox, Warner Brothers would give them that much money. It was a pretty amazing thing, but more so than the year with Fight Club, with American Beauty, with these movies, The Matrix still stands out as one of the best, if not the best movie of that year. It's probably the one that will live the longest in people's memories. You know, I mean, American Beauty won Best Picture. Fight Club, I think, is an all-time classic. And being John Malkovich as well, but... Yeah, being John Malkovich to me is it's maybe the winner there. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. But when I say lived in the most people's memory the longest, looking well, at the, main, the, ma- the yeah. mainstream. Yeah, just looking at the mainstream. So, 1999, Matrix comes out, grosses like, you know, ten times its budget, basically. I don't have the budget numbers in front of me. It made a shit ton of money. It made even more once it came out on video and DVD. And they greenlit the sequel. And we'll get back to this because, you know, there are two theories about about this and i'll just run through it quickly one is is that they had no plans for a sequel and then when they got greenlit for a sequel they had to like completely redo all of their ideas in order to make it fit into a newer longer storyline i happen to believe that that's not the case uh, i think there's a lot of evidence in the first movie but we will save that for later i believe that they were planting seeds about smith about that the matrix was more complicated than they were letting us believe in the first movie only because it just when things do get more complicated than the second movie second two movies in animatrix it, it you know it, it was pretty smooth even if the execution was not always there or often there depending on your your point of view but uh i want to jump into the seeing of the movie for the first time anything you want to add in the meantime no no let's let's, let's go in all right so uh, 
you know, one of the reasons I wanted to highlight 1999 was that I was a junior and then a senior. I believe you would be a sophomore and then a junior in that year. Um, I guess so, yeah. Because I'm one year ahead of talks. I took a year off before college, and we were in the same class in college. And I saw all of the, uh, pretty much all of those aforementioned good movies in the theater. And seeing American Beauty Fight Club and The Matrix and Talented Mr. Ripley and Magnolia and all of these movies in the theater, when you're a junior in high school, is like the perfect time to get into film. You know, I mean, at that point, I was just watching Braveheart over and over again. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with watching Braveheart over and over again. But I was just lucky to to be of that age, as were you, where they had all these great rated R movies that we were basically able to see. And, and that is what really got me into film, all those movies. But The Matrix, you know, got me into film, but it also got me into philosophy. When I saw The Matrix, I had sort of just begun in the previous year or so to start reading things like Cosmos by Carl Sagan. I was reading books about, you know, space and cosmology and astrophysics. I was reading some sort of basic philosophical stuff that I, that one of my social studies teachers at school recommended to me. I was getting into philosophy. I just didn't really realize it yet. And so the Matrix just hit home so hard in a way I didn't really uh, fully appreciate till a few years later. Did you, uh, did you see it in the theater? I saw The Matrix in the theater with my crew. Um, we were like the straight edge crew. So like that's all we did was like cool drive kids. around... Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, uh, yeah, we were the coolest of the straight edge kids. I don't know what that's uh, saying. Yeah, but no, that's that's cute. Yeah, uh, yeah I feel like yeah. I we was were friends of, with the non straight edge kids. I, I know, was, I, uh, I was sort of like, I feel like in some ways we were, you know, alphas within the beta crew. Right, <laughs> right, right. We, we, my, my crew was giant, so we would go in like three cars, drive all over the place, see movies, drive around, talk on very large people. cell phones. Yeah, yeah, prank people, houses that we didn't like and stuff like that. But we saw it in the theater and That's great. It was it was unbelievable. It was really amazing. You know, I've seen it so many times since then, but mm-hmm. I it that is one of those few movies I really remember. I uh really. I didn't get so a chance tell, to see tell it us in the your theater. experience, buddy. Yeah, I I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater actually. Um <sighs> I totally missed it. Uh but uh it came out on VHS. And one time when we were hanging out at my buddy's place uh, on like a Friday, we watched it on maybe a um, 24-inch CRT, not CRT, you know, tube television. So it was one of those sort of rounded, glassy, glossy monitors that uh, is exactly like all the crappy ones that they're always looking at things through in the Matrix, which is kind of a weird way of doing it. No, it's brilliant. And they use those TVs very specifically in the Matrix. They do it very, very well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And uh, it it was fantastic. I mean, I just remember how pumped we all were after seeing it, you know, and you're like 17 or 16 years old, so you're an idiot. And you're like, yeah, but, but what if... What if that's real? Right, and everyone was totally. kind of like jumping around and trying to do moves and just trying to see if the limits of your physical bodies really were just a mental construction and if you could magically fly and other stuff like that. And in so many ways, we were we were way too old for that kind of thinking. But it was such an alluring, such an alluring little fantasy that it was almost impossible to stop yourself from trying to hope. I disagree that we were too old. I would say we are the perfect age because not the Kung Fu stuff, but the what is the Matrix thing? Are we in a Matrix? 
at that age, you're old enough to understand the import of what they're uh, the the thesis or the scenario that they're putting forward. You mean like the non literal uh, uh, the non literal message that they're giving you? We were old enough to consider the possibility that the Matrix scenario is actually pretty logical from from a from a logic standpoint. Not not realistic, but logical. That that you know, the human batteries powering robots in the future actually would make sense. Um, and, and the whole simulation aspect of it. Wait, wait, wait. Time out. Did you just tell me that you think that that the actual the actual premise is logical? You think that actual human beings as batteries is more logical than any other animal or other you know forget about the sort of scientific mechanics or whatever of the matrix itself the notion of being in a simulation that you don't know you can't taste or touch or or, or feel or see goes back to plato his allegory of the cave as i've often talked about and descartes talked about this as well with his demon scenario what if a demon was controlling your brain that's where i think therefore i am comes from Descartes rightly pointed out that the only thing we can be sure of is that we are thinking. You know, we don't know what causes the thinking, we don't know what's outside of the thinking, but the fact that we are thinking about thinking seems to prove that we are therefore thinking cogito ergo sum. So we were old enough to think about these ideas, but we were also young enough to at least briefly consider the possibility that Maybe this isn't happening, but it's not so far-fetched. Again, not the mechanics of being robots or batteries, but of living in a simulation. And what I love about the movies, and what the movies never address, and I think they don't address this on purpose, although we can debate this later, is that it's not clear that leaving the Matrix in the mo- within the movie framework that living outside of the matrix is really that different from living inside the matrix because so much philosophy is about how we are, you know, living in a simulation of our own brain. C.C. Vaughn and I talked about this. We're not seeing, you know, I'm not seeing you, you know, my, my receptors or whatever in my eye are interpreting the, uh, the stimuli or whatever, and then a, an image is forming in my brain of you. But you could be something totally different, and I to would quote, never know. Uh, to quote the gorillas, you don't see with your eyes, you perceive with your mind. <laughs> That's Kant, basically. Yeah. It was, Kant was a huge Kant. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> is that one going to get cut out too? All right, no, keep going. Keep no, going. No. My bad jokes always. Stay oh, good. In. Thank God. Um, but the Matrix <laughs> never answers the question, and we'll get into the Matrix yeah, yeah, and yeah. the Matrix theory later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll hit that. The shit. point. The point being, you know, at that age, what you're really picking up on are the theories of oppression and systems of control, which is what the movies are really about, right? Yes. And I always talk about, you know, kids from 16 to 21 that's when they really have to learn and be taught because they're old enough where you can think for yourself, you have self-awareness, self-consciousness, but you're not old enough that you're set in your ways and so beaten down by the world that you don't have the time or energy or will to think outside the box in terms mm. of what, what, what if we are living in simulations. And I talk about it in Bizzlecast too. I did a whole podcast about John Baudrillard, whose simulations theory is like the main influence along with Ghost in the Shell on the Matrix. I mean, there's Baudrillard re- references throughout the 
movies. You see the actual book. Um, but he talks about actual civilizations existing, having to do with economics and politics and culture and, um, and, and money and virtuality and all of these sorts of things that we're not experiencing a true version of reality. And The Matrix just, you know, added, you know, a crazy sci-fi scenario and kung fu and then put a little Baudrillard in the middle and mushed it up and, pushed and put it on the screen. And some worked better and some didn't, but goddamn, it didn't get you thinking. Yeah, it was, it was great. So do you want to jump in and actually start to get into the, 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 the work itself? Right. So uh, one of my favorite parts of our Lord of the Rings podcast was when uh, you talked about the Balrog. And then that led me to do a sort of re- recap of all the amazing parts in the first movie. And you would jump in, you know, every every few things and you know like you bring up the council and how well executed that was and the wizards fighting which i missed in my recap which you talked about which was awesome and we were just trying to <laughs> we're trying to get get ourselves all stirred up about it and get excited again which really wasn't that hard to draw from that and sort of go through it and, and basically i think what i love about that section wasn't just that we were talking about our favorite stuff but that we use it as a platform to bring up major character narrative you know story structure ideas and whatever and so um i I wanted to propose to you um that we switch (gasps) this time oh my god you you're gonna propose to me (laughs) jesse it's i'm married and uh well janet can come along technically i'm you know i'm not a homosexual man but in so many ways this makes sense i yes yes a thousand times yes jesse (laughs) Well, I mean, our bromance is at least as strong as the Frodo Sam bromance, I would say. I, you know, side note, I actually thought that. that creatively, when I saw the movie, I actually thought that they were actually going to make out at the end of the movie. I thought they were going to go there and like make this big jump, and they were actually yeah. going to make out right when they were saying goodbye before they got on the on the ship. I actually thought Jackson was going to make Frodo and Sam just fucking kiss, because they were like this close to doing it, but, you know, obviously they didn't. But I... Yeah. I that was crazy. I, 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 we'll jump back to Matrix, but real quick, in my return, <laughs> know, right? in, in my Return of the King podcast, um, I talk extensively about their relationship and the and the sexual ambiguity of the relationship, and I thought it was great. I like that they didn't make out, but I also like that they left it open. It really kind of, looked close, didn't it? It, but yeah, there was a lot was of really sweet talk and a lot of sexual references, but whenever there was physical touching, like Sam holding him. It was never in like an overly sexual way, and then I no. go, but but then in the podcast, I'm like, even if they were gay, who who cares? That would be great. I mean, no, Jared I know, Tolkien's, I like it, I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I anyway, think it would be great. so anyway. so well, anyway, we strive for such a bromance, Adam and I do. But <laughs> um, <laughs> naked in the field, strawberries and cream. Um, oh God. Yeah. So anyways, so I was going to propose that you lead this time. Um, you, you, you will pitch and I will catch, if you will. Um, <laughs> and we, we, we go through the movie. And okay. uh, Tuck's got a lot of notes. Usually I'm the one who's overprepared. We go through the movie, we talk about our favorite parts or just cool stuff. I will jump in when I can. All right. I'll try and bring some, you know, maybe some philosophical stuff. But we'll see how this goes. Is this not okay to I, anybody? I, oh, I think this is going to go great. 
So, awesome. So yeah, I've come correct. I got a lot of stuff, but I did find sort of my my top five, and then I have a lot of branching stuff around that with all these like little details okay. that I've some of which actually are things I caught it the first time. But yeah, let's talk about the first five like or the top five like kind of favorite. But you, moments. you're going to go chronologically for yeah, the most part, right? Totally. Okay, totally awesome. So okay. the first one is very chronologically close to the beginning, right after. N- no officer your men are already dead and um the first really amazing camera trick we get is when uh trinity is going to be taken in by cops she stops that from happening jumps up in the air and the cameras do a 360 pan around her and this was we hadn't seen anything like that before there had been no technology no ability to actually take live film and do this kind of crazy morphing thing where you can just freeze action and move the camera behind somebody especially not while they're actually doing something in motion that blew my mind the first time i saw it and it was just incredible what's that kit called by the way i always call it the flying locust but i don't know what the hell it's called. <laughs> no that is not called the flying locust well I'm, no, I I'm, sw- I'm swayed because morpheus always does the praying mantis which is great well yeah the praying mantis is actually a kung fu form I know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But Trinity pulls that move all the time. Actually, I think it's like crane. the scorpion kick. She uses a scorpion kick a lot, too. I think that's a crane thing, actually. If uh, you really want to. Crane. Yeah, yeah, I think it's crane stuff. It's actually like Karate Kid, you know? Like, that's pretty much Karate Kid right there. I've seen the behind the scenes on the camera thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's note that that was also the first use of what they would later call bullet time, essentially. Yeah. Um, I guess that was a full stop as opposed to bullet time, but I, I still don't get how it works. I know they had like 40 cameras in a circle, basically. Yeah, and then I they just kind of understand. fake the frames in between. So, yeah. you know, you, you're you're using between them, then you're using computers to sort of fake the in-between shots. And they did a great job. So, I mean, that thing was the first hint at like, wait a minute, like, I'm just going to start seeing things physically that I've never seen before. And it was it was kind of incredible. And the whole chase scene around that that is an, an amazing chase. Like after that little fight scene and then, you know, they're all running after each other. You see like, you know, she and the agent are running after each other and they're both doing things that do look sort of hard. But then you have like for context, you have like the cops like barely able to keep up, like huffing and puffing, like tripping, falling. And you see like, oh, wait, for a reference point. Yeah, they look great. They're actors. They always are going to look great. You need that reference point of like the average human to be like, Oh, this is actually kind of something exceptional. And then they jump, you know, between buildings and go twenty feet. And then you're like, oh, okay, this is this is literally it's like superpowers. Bookmark the jumping between buildings because one of the biggest problems I had with the series, including the first movie, has to do with the jumping between buildings. But we'll get back to that later. Okay, sure. Let's just I'll tease it by saying this: Trinity jumping that long distance is the most Matrixy thing she does in the entire series. That's the only real Superman move she ever really has. Everything else is sort of acrobatic. That's the only time when she jumps the building and when Morpheus jumps the building in the uh, training simulation with Neo, you know, Morpheus is always telling Neo, some rules can be bent, some rules can be broken, Mm -hmm. but they never break any rules. Neo's the only one that breaks rules. They do bend rules slightly, but but the... you know, you see, you see Trinity jump, you know, a hundred feet across roofs, but then she never, she can't fly. You know, she's not walking on the ceiling. Like it, they hint all of this breaking and bending of rules, but other than Neo, you just don't see it. I think, I think what they mean to say when he says that is not that everyone can can break rules, but I think he was saying that like 
in the simulation, some of rules can be bent, some can be totally broken, and you're going to be the one that can actually break them. But I can get that Morpheus can make the jump because it's a training construct, and therefore mm-hmm. the rules are not the same as the Matrix. But Morph- uh, Trinity in the Matrix making that jump, you just don't see anything that super powery. Like, other than that, Captain America is stronger than Trinity and Morpheus. Um, oh, that's, like, that's Captain America would kick both of their asses. Because if they get shot once, they're dead, you know? Captain America, I mean... Mm. Well, let's, let's, go, let's stick with it. Let's go back to that, because I actually have a lot of thoughts on that later, too. By the way, let me just stress. Movie-wise, film-wise, oh, my God. You're going, who is this woman? She's beautiful in a way I've never seen before. The leather is so perfect. It, it set the leather dynamic. I mean, it's a joke now because everyone's copied it. But at the time, doing like shiny black leather and, and her close cropped hair. It, actually, if you look at Trinity in the first movie, she looks really young. You sort of forget how young she was when it first started. Yeah. She's this great look. It's, she's androgynous, but she's beautiful. And yeah, and then the chase with the agents. And then she jumps. She rolls down the stairs. And her two guns come out, and she just goes, "Get up, Trinity! Get up, Trinity!" Which is that, the, that whole thing which is the is first amazing. hint, which is the first hint of this actually being mental control, not actually being based on physical stuff. That's yeah. your sort of first like little taste that like, okay, yeah, it is all about the mind. It's not about it's not about the body here. But it also tells you everything you need to know about her character, which is that a she never stops running, right? But b she never stops fighting, and she never gives up. Like it, it just I talk about in the in the commentaries. Real quick plug: I like with the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to use this to launch. I think commentaries I've done for the Matrix movies, and I say in the commentary that sort of the whole opening scene, starting with her and the and the policeman and the phone, and ending when they smash her with the truck and she d- just makes it out. Yeah, and we meet Agent Smith. That is like probably the best t- opening ten mo- minutes of any movie ever because of how much it communicates like if you watch the whole movie and then watch those first 10 minutes again it it tells you everything you need to know from a structural standpoint yeah absolutely great stuff great stuff they even um they even actually set up the fact that there's an informant but i think the first time i watched it i think that line was a throwaway for me i didn't i didn't catch it um but they they really do kind of set up a lot of dramatic tension there well not to mention we'll get we'll, we'll get back to cypher but there's actually before that, the, at the very beginning when you see the code, it's her and him talking. Yeah, it's her, but you don't know it's Cipher until you've seen it like two or three times. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's a, but then you connect it, and what I love is that they did not do a hide and seek with Cipher. They made him uh, almost obviously a bad guy right from the beginning, which I thought was a great choice. A great choice. Yeah, especially yeah. With, with that character actor being creepy, it just works. Well, so you, well. You, you didn't. You don't need a fucking Shyamalan twist kind of thing with him um it's there's already enough going on that just yeah it doesn't need to be a surprise for you it it can just be a surprise for the characters yeah i i uh that i mean that thing was great and then going right from there to uh to uh you know his scene that he has you know he does his little wake up right like so they they do that and then it finally cuts to neo you see him he has that cute little exchange with the person with the white rabbit and goes to the club um, oh, I love her. Dijor is her name. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's yeah, she's, she's kind of a sex bot. Yeah, she's a pretty awesome character. And uh, what and, does the guy uh, say? He, I know. Neo, go- Neo goes. Fault. You're two hours uh, late. The, <laughs> uh, the, uh, Neo says to the to the dude that he's selling the the software to. He's like, Have you ever had the f- feeling you don't know whether you're sleeping 
whether dreaming or you're awake, and he goes, yeah, man, mescaline, only way to fly. Which is ridiculous, <laughs> because if you were fucking on mescaline all the time, you are a crazy person, and, like, not happy, and not okay. Uh, it surely looks pretty crazy, that's why it works for me. I actually also kind of like it, though, because then he's, then he's like, then he like comes back to, like, not being a bravado douchebag, and is like, hey, actually, man, like, maybe you just need to get out of the house. You want to go to, like, you want to just go hang out? Let's just go hang out at a club. Totally. And I love, like, it seems like it's going to be this, like, ridiculous, like, you know, little goth orgy. But then it's, like, it's kind of, like, totally just a normal club. They're just, like, sitting down smoking and having a chat with their friends. <laughs> like, you know, you expect to see something ridiculous, but it was totally um, it was totally reasonable. Except for the fact that Rob Zombie is playing on loudspeakers. Love um, Rob Zombie. It, says, it actually says it in the closed captioning, like, Rob, like, Rob Zombie. So, so, obviously, you know, uh, after the club, he wakes up. He's late for his uh, he's late for his job, which apparently is at a place called Metacortex. Which Metacortex? Is, I, never, I never realized that until yesterday. That was great. His boss is named uh, Mr. Reinhardt, which means Heart of Stone. Oh. oh, oh, interesting. So, I'd never known that Mr. Reinhardt Schumann is actually Heart of Stone Schumann. <laughs> and that's also the office, by the way, that he goes out of when he's trying to escape the agents. And yeah, yeah. Stuff. And, uh, you know, they have that incredible scene where he gets the phone <laughs> and it, like, you know, the bottom part clicks open, which is such a cool thing, but it's still so rooted in that time period. It is so not the way that the future happened. No, but that's what makes it... That's what... <laughs> Here's the thing. There are two reasons why that phone still works. One, it was cool when you saw it, and it's still cool. I would have bought the Click phone. I would buy that Click phone today if that existed. It's so, it's like a it's a switchblade essentially combined with a phone. Yeah. But but what's crazy is unlike the Zoolander joke, you know, where they have the little tiny cell phones. Cell phones haven't gotten smaller. They've just grown in other dimensions. I mean, in some ways, I mean, people. I have people. You, you see people with mini tablets like walking around in their phones. So the size of the phone actually holds up better. And there's little stuff too. Like Keanu Reeves, obviously not the greatest actor. We'll probably come back to this again. But he plays little things well. Like he's sitting at his desk when the FedEx guy comes and he's just staring at his computer and it's off. And he's just staring. And then the FedEx guy goes, Thomas J. Anderson or whatever it is. And Kenny Reeve goes, yeah, that's me. And the way he says, yeah, that's me, just sums up like how pathetic he feels about his life. And then the American Express guy, after he signs, goes, have a nice day. You know, and Keanu Reeves just like looks up. You can already tell something is wrong. And then right then the phone call hits. Yeah, that whole scene is great. That scene is great. And, you know, it's, you start to actually get Morpheus narrating now and talking to him over the phone. Uh, and he does some, there's some great little hijinks where he's hiding and trying to be stealthily. And he's trying to, and trying to get onto the roof, but he fails. He can't do it. Yeah, he doesn't have the, doesn't have the courage. But, but who would? I mean, so <laughs> I talk about in my podcast that if this movie was released today and it was exactly the same, the suspense of... How the hell does Morpheus know what's going on would be lessened because of our surveillance society and our surveillance technology that in 2015, it would not be, you know, I mean, we see this in like Homeland and shows like that. I mean, that you could you you could walk someone out of a building without having to be anywhere near the building because the number of cameras. 1999 just wasn't there yet. Yeah. Now, dramatically, it's so well done that that's going to hold up well, you know, pretty much in any uh, situation, but 
I, it was just something I noticed while watching it. No, I think you're right. Like his surprise, like how do you know all this? Instead, he'd be like, "Oh, are you in on the cameras in the company that are watching right, all of right. us, making sure we're doing our work?" All right. You, you, I, I've hacked both Google and the NSA. Yeah, we're cool. Like, all right. Yeah, no, it was it was more uh, more creepy and more more shocking. I think, and and the time it was made, but it still doesn't. It doesn't take anything away from it now. And this is the, that that Morpheus dialogue, even though it's over the phone. Is the beginning of Morpheus as Yoda, which I talk about all the time. He looks like Yoda. He talks like Yoda in this role. It's so hilarious. Well, Neo, Neo, Neo will be like, "You want me to stay here?" And you're like, "Yes." Are you sure? Yes. You know, <laughs> or like just like the way he inflects. I don't know. I see the Matrix I'm not, Reloaded. I'm not totally speech. sure. I see the Yoda connection, but right, I, right, I, we'll I, get I like I your. Just, I like. I like. I like the thought at least. I mean, I don't think it was conscious, but. Um, you know, the, the, you can already hear Morpheus's pure confidence over the phone without ever having met him before. And uh, the rise and fall of Morpheus's confidence is one of the things that keeps me coming back to the whole trilogy because I love his whole story arc. But we will get to that later. So yes, yes, yes. He gets so, captured by Smith and the Agents. Okay? He gets captured by Smith and the Agents, and you have your first hint of uh, the uh, of the what do you call it the the architect's uh, lab where he's looking at things. You see these little banks of monitors, and you're like, oh, shit, okay, look at that. And so that, that I think, is, you know, you're saying that there are hints that there other movies are coming. Well, that, that I think, is the first clear one, that they actually absolutely. had some, some sense of where things could go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, no, I was just going to back you up on that. Uh, that. You know, it's possible that they came up with that idea, but the, the fact that you're looking at a multiple or infinite universes possibility and then reloaded just takes that to a whole new level where you're just following neo's choice in the timeline that we're following but we're seeing that there's a lot of other timelines that we're never going to get to see is brilliant and the torture man oh dude what so what are you thinking when they in that scene when you're first watching it i mean it was fantastic well first of all they did a great job humanizing the agent he was like we're here because i need your help <laughs> and he takes off his glasses. I also, I mean, the the line reading Clips in that is his syllables. Flips his syllables. No, he does this one. And do you help your landlady take, take out, out her the, garbage? Uh, that was the best. <laughs> take out her garbage, and it sort of starts with this like slightly like, mm, isn't that nice? And then he just has this face like, fuck you. Like his weird little like his quiet uh, 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 facial changes are so fantastic for that one. And then he just looks so disgusted at Neo. Uh, so what I love about the dynamic of that scene is that Hugo Weaving, first of all, I think we can agree that Hugo Weaving, Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith, one of the great all-time sci-fi bad guy characters ever, in my opinion. I think he's the most charismatic person in the whole movie by far. I would say Lawrence Fishburne is right there. And actually, Lawrence Fishburne gets more charismatic as the movies go on. Because he's sort of a two, you know, one or two-dimensional prophet in the first movie. In the second two, when his faith gets tested, he gets much more interesting. Morpheus, that is. But Agent Smith, he's got that little binder. He's got that little binder with the, the string, string. Yeah. that like, you can't even find anymore. And everything's in the Matrix font, by the way. Like It has all of his hacking records, and it's all in like Matrix font. Like They just... Whatever. Uh, and But the way Hugo Weaving plays it, he says to Neo, my, you know, my, uh, my, my comrades here think I'm wasting my time, but I think you want to do the right thing. What's so great about his delivery and the writing is he could just be full of shit knowing Neo is not going to follow along, you know? So when, when Neo gives him the finger, 
it, there's this look of self-satisfaction on Agent Smith's face. I think he never expected Nia to want to... to that, that, he never expected that Nia would agree, and now he was just looking forward to the torture, basically. I don't know what your interpretation was, but I think everyone but Nia knew it was ha- going to be happening in that situation. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But no, but I think, I think it was an honest attempt. You know, otherwise, I don't think he would have taken off his glasses. I think it was an honest attempt to sort of practice his, let me see if I can emotionally connect to a human being, and then he's fine with the fact that it doesn't work. Which is um, something they nail in the entire trilogy, by the way. Almost, you know, they're wearing, when they're in the Matrix, they're wearing sunglasses 80 to 90% of the time. But the 10 to 20% that they don't, it's usually something very important, like Neo with the Oracle or with Persephone with the kiss and that kind of stuff. I, I, lo- I don't know how they made sunglasses work. You know, actors like Carrie Ann Moss and, and, and Lawrence Fishburne, to be able to show a full range of acting ability without having your eyes for a large portions of the movie, that is very, very hard to pull off, I would say. And um, so, but just to jump back into that, so yeah, you're totally on point with him taking off the the, sun, the uh, sunglasses. What do you think of the effects in that one? The mouth thing, and then the the, the squiddy bot going into the belly button. I love it. I love the squiddy bot. The mouth the mouth thing's pretty cool. Uh, it's pretty so good. Uh, I actually wanted to ask you about this. I was talking about the mouth thing in the commentary. That's one of those effects that's either awesome or horrible, and I can't tell which it is. Are they it's, just erasing his mouth on like Photoshop, basically? I mean, yeah, I, I think they're kind of just yeah doing some live stuff. Um, because when he when he goes like this, and those when, little, he, when he when and you see like it's starting to connect when he pulls his mouth back, he's actually acting it. Like he's actually going, and he's actually oh, like no, rolling no, his lips no. over his teeth. Obviously, you know. But uh, then there's like a sheen over the closed. Mouth. Yeah, so you'll notice that's a totally different skin color. So I, at some point, I think they actually did put a little bit of like latex on his face for like when he's then like moving around and and, and unable. So to you speak. think that's practical? I think at the end it is practical, but they uh, didn't do a great job matching the rest of his skin color. So it's a little. See, I think yeah. In hindsight, CGI would have been the way to go. Maybe they wouldn't be able to pull it off. And no, they, they, it would have been hard to do that much movement. Like that's the thing. Like if if you keep going with it, it would be really hard for them to do it. They, really, all they needed to do is add a little bit more red into the paint, and they would have been fine. Right. It's a little, um, it was a little pale. It's a little pale. Yeah, the but squiddy it was, looks amazing. It was fine. It was fine. And I talk about how, for whatever reason, the, the, seeing it go through the belly button is more horrifying than anywhere. Like yes, it, seeing more it horrifying go into his, the mouth. Yeah, because that's not chest. actually a place. That's not a place where you can get in. Right, but it kind of looks like maybe it would be, but it's not. But holy shit, the idea of something actually burrowing through there and like getting well, there's a the tail little... squiggling oh, outside the fuck. belly button. Oh, Jesus Christ! Terrible. It's Terrible. awesome. And by the way, that that is the first Sentinel. Essentially, it's like a mini Sentinel. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And that's the beginning of the you know Terminator. It's uh, also it's also the beginning. I mean, it of looks the, just like a Terminator with the red eye and everything. It's also the beginning of the language that they they continue to use about authority. This is one of the first time they say many authorities consider him to be the most dangerous man alive. You know, they're, the word authority is the th- word authority and control are are used very purposely in the, in the film, and I think this is the first time they really hit authority, hit you over the head with the word authority. Um, so, uh, just to push this forward, yeah. the only thing I don't, the only small thing that bugs me so much is so. You know, Neo wakes up as if from a bad dream. Okay, do you think it's like the previous day? Do they like reset it and then he goes to work and pretends that he never got caught? Like, I don't, 
what what are they implying that like did he wake up thinking that he just got out of the club? No, they arrested him in the middle of the afternoon, and he wakes up his in his bed in the middle of the night. Yeah, but what the fuck does he think just happened? Like he thinks, oh, that was just a dream. Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. What, does he think that the whole day was a dream? Well, the thing is, they don't give you enough time to think about him thinking about that because Morpheus calls immediately. Yeah, all right. And that's what I love is they push the plot. They could have kept us in suspense a few more minutes. They just push the plot forward. The only thing I hate is Morpheus goes, these lines are tapped. I can't say much, but meet us at this exact intersection. Meet us at this exact location. <laughs> also, you're the one. <laughs> and they would have killed you if they had the chance. It's like, whoa, that's a right. lot to put on an untapped it's phone It's possible call. what he meant by line tap was a line trace. Yeah, well, maybe. That maybe. that he could get 20 to 30 seconds of speaking time in before they would find him. That's the only thing I can think of. But then there's that giant old-school American car with the with the doors that open backwards, you know, and he slides yeah, into the backseat. I love the device that pulls the squiddy out because it's such an old-school sci-fi device. You don't know what anything does, but it just looks totally practical. Yeah, it's it great. Just, That's great. It's great, yeah. And they pull it back through the belly button with the guts in it oh it's awesome one thing like every once in a while there's some clunky writing and this is one of the biggest clunkers in the whole fucking film is when the person goes look dude if you're not going to take off your shirt i need to give you a talking to it's either our way or the highway and it's like it doesn't rhyme that phrase is only even a phrase because my way and highway rhyme. <laughs> like, you can't do that. Just say the actual phrase. But some studio executive must have given them a dumbass note and made him change it. And, and yeah, they, right after that, me at all. right after that clunker of a line, they play mm. the stock sound effect of thunder right, that is right. like present in every single video game in the nineties. Oh, dude! Uh, they, they, they go, with the, the 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 lightning strike when he sees Morpheus. The rain. It's way over the top, but you have to do it. No, no, no. no. It, but this it works is the so one. well with the this mood. Is, I think. This is the one that is like the most over. It's like the Wilhelm yes, scream the of. Yeah, thank you. It's the Wilhelm scream of. Um, of lightning effects, basically. So they, so they meets Morpheus. They talk, and I love his little lines about he's explaining the Matrix, and he talks about, um, you know, you feel it when you go to work, you feel it when you go to church, you feel it when you're paying your taxes. That's kind of that's kind of it, man. Like those are the three things that they're kind of talking about. Which mirrors Smith uh, telling him that he pays his taxes, and then Morpheus talks about paying taxes. Everything is mirrored in the movies. Yep. This is the thing. There's. There's there's almost the, uh, an oppressive amount of symmetry throughout the movies, and I love that stuff, especially in philosophical movies. But I get why people would think it was too on the nose in some cases. But what's great is there are enough callbacks within the movie and between movies that are very subtle that only true fans um, would would notice. So it's not all obvious stuff like that, or the lightning and thunder, you know, the the, the rain which represents the Matrix code. Like not everyone would put together that the constant rain. Is mirroring the Matrix code, but there it is. By the way, one of the great character reveals of all time, Morpheus. The lightning strike, he turns around, he's got the smile on his face that looks a little mischievous. You know, you already kind of think he's a good guy, but but, and this is what I really want to stress going forward, um, and, we'll, and we'll go through the, the Matrix reveal and then jump into the training, as you were wanting to talk about, which is, let me ask this as a question. Try and think back to when you first saw the movie. Mm-hmm. At this point, when he's meeting Matrix, ma- uh, sorry, <laughs> Matrix? When he's meeting Matrix, um, when Neo is meeting Morpheus for the first time, he meets the crew for the first time, gets the red pill and the blue pill. Morpheus is is giving him very um, cryptic information. 
as regarding the matrix because you know you have to be you have to see the matrix you can't be told what it is which is a recurring theme what are you thinking the matrix is at this point and because the, you know remember when they they uh after he takes the red pill they put some sensors on him and they talk about that they're trying to to you know uh find his location you know and i'm going what do you mean find his location he's right here you know <laughs> Where else is he? So, where are you thinking at this point? Do you remember? I don't. I mean, I think I, I, you know, like I again, I saw it after it was out on VHS, but I still don't think I really understood. I had were you heard too had much. you been spoiled by the? Uh, so you'd probably been spoiled about what the Matrix was at that point. Maybe a little bit, but I don't. You know, I didn't know. I that was the first would... viral campaign ever, by the way. The what is the Matrix dot com, nineteen ninety nine. A few months leading up to the movie, they had all these puzzles, codes, things that if you solved, you get clues. Um, you know, a lot of movies do that That's now. Cool. But in '99, what is the Matrix.com? I was on that all day long. They had comics they were releasing. Like it was awesome. Oh shit! So, uh, well, okay. So I remember in the theater, and um, I had no, I had no clue. I had no clue. And one of the things I praise the first Matrix movie for in the podcast is. What movie since then has had that level of sustained mystery for the first, like, 30 to 40 minutes of the movie, where you are truly, like, my brain, I was so in the movie, just viscerally, my brain was working on overdrive, trying to figure out what the fuck was going on, and I could not figure it out, and I don't know any movie since then that, that, you know, where I felt that way. I mean, I'm sure I could think of something, but it, it was masterfully done. It was, it but, was but great. But it was real mystery. It wasn't like M. Night Shyamalan, you know, with a sleight of hand over here and then slipping, a, you know, a surprise here. It wasn't a twist. That, no. That's what was great about it. There was a secret, but it wasn't a twist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, the, you know, they get him. The transition between him. So, <laughs> so as they're tracing his position in, in the Matrix pods, Neo reaches out and, like, in a very sort of Donnie Darko kind of way, like touches a wall that's not a wall and a mirror, sort of, right? That, but it's not that's not really there. Um, and then he, he pulls away, and you know he starts to see f- uh, the fabric of reality warping. And then all of a sudden, they they get his position. And you know, I always try and think in my mind that the visual. You maybe you can explain this how they went visually from looking at his face in in the matrix world as he was getting swallowed by this thing and then immediately be sliding down through his brain waves essentially we we see the physical movement of his brain going from the matrix into his real body basically yeah 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 i i, I don't know i mean i actually think that was uh i i more took that as like something coincident he like okay so the mirror that he's looking at starts to heal itself it's a cracked mirror that heals itself, and he's like, "What the fuck is that?" He touches it, and then this, this basically, this mirror stuff starts taking over his body. It um, looks like the liquid metal from. Looks Terminator. like liquid metal, yeah. And uh, you know, they're talking about how he's like going into arrest. He's starting to have a cardiac thing, uh, and things are going to go wrong if they can't sort of jump him out of the matrix. And basically, I'm seeing him like they get him out just like in the nick of time before like his change of perception of reality would have caused him to have a heart attack and die. Um, so I think it was just an interesting transition. I don't think it was a literal him. I don't think it was meant to be literal that he was like becoming out of the matrix via this stuff. I think it was more like that actually would have just killed him. And it was, you know, they got him out in the nick of time right beforehand. 
So that was my that's been my take on 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 that little scene. Yeah, but he gives out he gives off this primal scream, which they then modified to a very electronified version of the primal scream. And then, yeah, and it's like almost like you're following a, neur- a chain of neurons or something. And then, boom, he's in the pod. One of the all-time most horrific and brilliant images. Why don't they have hair here? It's a pod. Why doesn't he have hair? Why does he have hair? Why does he not have hair? No, I understand what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like, why doesn't he have, like, exceedingly long hair? Like, why does he not um, have, like, all the fucking hair that you could possibly imagine? Why is he bald My guess hairless? is the goo takes care of any abscesses or, you know, things on the body that's not just skin, basically. Why not just liquefy the hair and feed it to him, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Anything that they, they don't need, including dead baby or uh, dead people, they liquefy and feed to babies. One of the most disturbing sights ever. And that's what sells the Matrix. Now, I'm jumping ahead to Morpheus. No, no, but yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. When we, you know, we, we really find out that humans are being used as battery cells, and then when they die, they're liquefied and fed to babies. It's so horrifying, but that's what sells it being real. You know what I mean by being real? Yes. In this universe, that, that's exactly what you would do. That's exactly what you would do. You'd feed the remains to the babies. And, you know, which is, like, so horrifying to think that your life starts not only in a pod without any knowledge of where you are, but you, your life starts by eating the remains of other people that are forced onto you. And then, you know, I think the practical effects of the pod in the first movie looks great. Yeah, I don't even mind, I don't even mind the, uh, the little, you know, CG robot that comes up and takes him by the neck. <laughs> what, what I don't understand is why... I love that why... you and I notice the same thing. I, 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 I make fun of that arm in the commentary. Yeah, it's a little, like, yeah, it's a little ridiculous. But well, here's he, the other thing about the first movie. It, it, it's always man, machine. You, you never really see the images together. It's always yeah, shot yeah, the, yeah. one or the other. Which is fine. It's, I think that's totally fine. My thing with that is I always wonder... Um, how did Why they did... snap off all that? No, go ahead. No, go yeah, ahead. well, that too. Yeah, sure. But, you know, maybe they have quick release valves. But no, no, like, no, no. I, I mean, always from wonder. From an effect standpoint, how did they do that? Oh, uh, someone's just pulling them off. Someone's pulling them off? Yeah, yeah. off camera. What I kind of think is, is interesting is that they don't just kill them. Like, the machine isn't there to then just choke them to death. It's just seeing that, like, oh, we got another bad one. Flush it. And, you know, it's kind of cute that that's, uh, that that's a... Uh, they, hacked, they hacked the machine. Oh, that you think so? Oh, they um, hack. They have they have machines that they use specifically for that purpose that they've hacked. I never got that at all. Is that is that like like you've heard this before? Like they they talk about it? Yeah, because when it grabs his neck is when everything snaps off immediately, and once it realizes that he's been freed, the robot kind of pulls up into its carapace and then goes, and away. goes away. Oh, okay. Well, that, I always thought that was logically it was a silly thing that they would not. That they would have, have to. The How could they shoot? flush him? Yeah, that, that's the other issue. Is where's this water? They just, yeah. Why wouldn't they just kill him and just you know immediately yeah. liquefy him or whatever? Why would they put him into some water? So that makes way more sense as to as to yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. Actually I, I'm I'm 99 percent sure that that is a hacked. Uh, bot and i think that's really cool that they that's a better explanation that. that makes way more sense all right 
So, so you get that. You then finally have him taken up, and you start to see the real world. And what do you notice? You can't really tell this yet because you've just been in the pods. But the second you get onto the ship, you realize that, oh, my God, I've been looking at a movie that's been color graded to completely green the whole time. And now is the first time I'm getting blue light. And, of course, what is blue light? Blue light is natural light. It's actually the light from the sun. Which is funny because actually there is no natural light in this ship or whatever, but it's an you know it's another way of saying now you're in the real world, the natural world. Um, the blue blue is is real world, but I, I would call it Zion world because the real world also includes the machines who are red. So you've got yeah. the red machines, you've got the blue humans, and then the green of the Matrix. Those but, are the three. Uh, but no, it's not just blue as humans. Blue is natural light, and they're, they're what they're telling you is that no, they chose no such... it for that reason. But I'm just saying it correlates. I'm saying what you're sort of hinting at, which is that they use various lights to identify where you are and who you're with. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, they also have a lot of red themselves. And they have, and there's red in the Matrix as well. So it's like, it's not, yeah. Anyway, but, but you know, green, green shadows and green midtones is Matrix. Right. Blue shadows and blue midtones is, uh, is the real world. And they are very good about keeping that together. And you really don't even notice that you've been looking at something that's been so harshly graded until that point, which is a great little reveal. So then everyone's, you know, you see everybody and they're all dressed like they're from Kanye's latest uh, fashion show. I was shocked by how similar it is to like the Yeezy line that just came out. I was fucking, I I laughed to myself. I actually had to pause the thing. Derelict. Yeah, I, I just and then you know they start going through. He explains the situation, uh, and they t- he takes him into to show him what the matrix is. I love the idea of the mental projection of the digital self. However, it's such a funny thing because we have no idea what we fucking look like, and we're always actually surprised that we look well, like. What pictures, if what you know? if I'm convinced I have a twelve inch cock, but I really don't. <laughs> Well, does that mean does that mean I have a twelve inch cock in, in the, the digital world? I think so. Actually, uh, I'm pretty. I sure speculated one of the commentaries about uh, whether Neo and Trinity like having sex in the Matrix because of all their special skills. But, yeah, I mean, because seriously, it's like how how is the real stuff? You know, he's he's this atrophied little weak dude. Like he's gonna be he's gonna be terrible in the sack. He's you know, but in the Matrix, he could maybe he's fantastic. So uh, uh, they have the cutest product placement of all time, uh, and then what are you and talking then, about? The copper top battery. Oh, copper top. Bing! Into this. And they don't even show the logo. They don't have to show the logo. They just show the color blocking. Do they not? Nope. They don't say Duracell. They they got away from that, but they just showed the copper top and the black bottom. Uh, sure, sure. And she also calls them copper top. She earlier. calls them copper top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they did a good job with that. I'm sure they. I'm sure they also talked to Energizer about that, uh, but they they couldn't get that money. Um, but copper top's such a great insult, especially when you yeah, don't know what it means. It's good. Initially. It's good. Yeah, and I like that they just throw it out there, and he doesn't even question it. So this next hint that uh, you have that there, you know, he throws up. He can't. Re- he can't do it. His mind rejects it, and he goes to sleep. He wakes up, and then Morpheus sort of actually explains more uh, specifically the prophecy. And here's your other piece of um, of uh, evidence that they actually had uh, other movies in mm-hmm. in mind. They talk about uh, you know there was a there was one who could change the matrix as his will. He freed the first of us. Um, you know, and the Oracle's been with us since the beginning, and they said that she'd be coming again. And that was the, also your first hint that there's, yeah, there's another one of you, it's going to keep happening, and maybe this is a cyclical thing. So I, I, I do buy, as you do, that this was something that they had considered, if not fully, up, like maybe they hadn't totally gone in on it all the way, not knowing whether or not it was ever going to happen. They were definitely putting the, the ground out there that this is a cyclical thing that happens time and time again. 
but that that's that's what's so great. The Oracle's already set up as the major or one of the major programs in the machine world. And the unanswered question is, has the Oracle been angling for reconciliation from the beginning? Or was there a point during the six cycles where she said, okay, I've had enough of this enslaving humans. I'm going to try and do this differently. And no, he says, I, yeah. And here's the other, the other question is, who, who took the first person out of a pod, right? And this yeah. is the thing that Morpheus never asks himself. He hears the whole prophecy. The Oracle was there. There was one of us, freed a bunch of us. But who, I mean, someone's got to take you out of the pod. They got to clean you up. They got to give you the acupuncture treatment. They got to tell you the whole story, they, you know? Right. So who, who was the first one? So my only explanation was that <laughs> if you're just looking at the first movie, because once you realize that Zion and the prophecy is just a giant lion and another system of control in the second movie, that explains everything. But if you just go by the first movie, it seems logical that the only way that th- this rebellion would be possible is that some humans escape during the initial war. This would be a good time to tie in the Animatrix. I, I can't remember if it was the first two. There's a two-parter yeah. um, of awesome old-school anime cell 2D animation animating the fall of man and the rise of the machines in the war. That is so bloody and gloriously designed. It's so cool. The machines look so different. It, it, it's really dark. It's narrated the whole time, but the woman who's narrating it is so brilliant that it just totally sells the backstory. So my theory was, after seeing the first movie, some people escaped the Matrix and went underground immediately to start Zion. And then they figured out how to hack in and start taking people out. But yeah. if... Yeah, that would be the only way to explain it. But then, of course, once we find out that it's just another system of control by the Oracle and the Architect and everybody, it's, it makes more sense. Well, I also like that the, the, the prophecy that he gives him is actually all technically correct. Like, it'll end the war with the machines. Humanity will be free. You know, da 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 It's like, so it, all these things are technically correct, but yes. it's not. it doesn't mean what he thinks it means. I also think it's kind of cute. Wait, that, can I just quit, jump on that really quick? Yeah. Because that's an excellent observation that most people don't get, which is that Morpheus is ultimately right in the movies, but not for the reasons that he thinks. Right, yeah. Um, and this will go... And, and, and the in. Oracle. And the Oracle is telling him the truth and giving him the true prophecy, or a prophecy that is true, but your interpretation of it is based on... Uh, <laughs> your interpretation is based on your perspective. The same way that when she tells Neo in the first movie that he's not the one, she's not lying. Yeah. At that moment, he's not the one. And she never says the words, and you will never be the one. Yeah. She just says, you're says not you're, the one. No, and she says, you're waiting for something. Right. Yeah. Right. But and Keanu doesn't pick up on the fact that she's actually saying that he is the one and he's not ready. Yeah, Keanu Maybe doesn't pick is. up on a lot of stuff. It this seems. is... Uh, so I have some questions about the movie from in the final act of the first movie. But wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. You want, you want, to, you want to No, no, jump? I'm not jumping to it. Okay. I'm, I want to jump back to you. I want to say that just to reinforce that... I, you probably didn't have a chance, but I, I wrote a grad school paper about... Um, I didn't get a chance. I'm sorry. I actually started okay. to read it and then... Worked. No, no, it's okay. I, I, it's, it's about... Um, it's about Morpheus, and it's about a, a very famous, influential Danish Christian philosopher from like the 1600s, 1700s named Kierkegaard. He, he developed this idea of the leap of faith. And basically, he you know went against a lot of Christian philosophers who were trying to rationalize faith and said, no, no, guys, that's the whole point of faith. It's not rational. If it's rational, it's not faith. Yeah. Belief can be rational, but faith cannot. That's what we, we we use the word leap of faith. He coined that term. Like the leap of faith comes from Kierkegaard. 
And so I talk about Morpheus's leap of faith in the paper, but then also about how when things start turning in a way he doesn't expect, he loses his faith so, so quickly. And that's what that's one of the things I love about the part of the second movie and the third movie, which we'll get to. Uh, pretty much most of the things I like about the third movie, which both of us have problems with, have to do with Morpheus. I love Morpheus's uh, reconstructing his faith, and I love Jada Pinkett Smith as Niobe. I love their relationship. I think they have amazing chemistry because she's the one who's the more practical one, but she's the one who ends up grounding him and saying, "Yeah, sure, dude." There's but there's that great part at the end where she gives the ship to Neo. Spoiler alert! And <laughs> and Morpheus goes. I thought you didn't believe in the one. And she goes, I don't, but I believe in him, which is the point that Neo, the Morpheus was missing the whole time. He had to stop believing in this idealistic prophecy, you know, this idealized prophecy that's very abstract. No, you've got to believe in this person. Well, the other thing that seems so interesting to me is that for a, a group of such anti-authoritarians, literally, uh, people who don't want a series of controls and who don't want to be not in control of their lives. He's so quick just to latch on with, you know, fundamentalist religious fervor to uh, the notion of this prophecy and everything it says. The first thing he hears that's uh, that is another authoritative thing that like, yes, and this will happen and this will be how this works and have this faith in this thing. The first time that he hears something like that, that is what he wants to hear Morpheus goes for it whole hog. You know what I mean? He's not what constantly the, quite the prophecy. And, you know, oh, the fact he, that he's going to find Well, we one. don't know how many times he met the oracle before. We get once. No, they say. He sees the oracle and then everything changes. Everything changed, right. So he sees her once and then he becomes this believer. And I think it, I think really, really think it is, is that this is the first time that a, ser- a system of control or an authority figure or something along those lines has given him an outlook or given him... Um, a path that is alluring or attractive to him. And so he just goes for it completely and doesn't question it. Which is brilliant because if you think about the dynamics of sort of the transfer of belief here, right? Uh, It's just that Morpheus believes that Neo's the one. And actually we're never really given a full description of why Neo specifically he thinks is the one. Um, because it doesn't seem like the Oracle has told him. It seems like the Oracle has told him that he would find the one, not that the one would be Thomas A. Anderson or whatever the hell his name is. But Neo doesn't believe in fate and destiny, and Morpheus does, right? And there's that great part where Neo's meeting the Oracle. We'll spend a lot of time on the Oracle in a little bit, but there's that great part in the first movie where he meets the Oracle, and the Oracle... You know, and Neo's all down because he doesn't think he's the one, and Morpheus is going to be disappointed, and and she goes, "Here, have a cookie." You remember, you don't believe in all that. You don't believe in any of that fate or destiny crap, right? And what this sets up is so many things for the last two movies that I do like the philosophy, which is the debate between free will and determinism. Yeah, everyone other than Neo. Morpheus believes in fate, providence, and destiny, but he also believes you can make choices. Philosophically, that's very problematic. Neo and Trinity are the only true, and uh, Niobe, I guess, are the only true, like, real free will people. 
right? They're, they really believe in the radical power of human choice. Everyone from the Oracle to Smith to Morpheus in a way to the Merovingian, all of these people talk about control and you've already made your choices and everything's circumscribed and determined. And, mm. um, you know, and, and that's what's great is even though the Oracle's a good guy, she's manipulating everyone so much. And she, basically, she believes that she needs her main protagonists to question themselves like she creates situations that on the surface harm them like sending neo to the source she knows exactly she knows exactly what's going to happen when neo goes to the source it's happened six times already or this is the sixth time but she is able to recognize that maybe this time is different but he she can't tell neo everything yet he has to go through the experience talking to the architect, hearing it from the machines themselves before he realizes what he has to do. Now, I didn't love the choice in the third movie about what he had to do. I would have done that way differently. But the the notion of her telling people what they need to know, not what they think they should know, I think is a really cool concept. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Knowing the path versus walking it. Open the door, you got to push through yourself, yeah. Okay, but we will get back to the Oracle for sure. So, Tuck, keep us moving here, buddy. All right. So, now he's in the blue world. Uh, he wakes up the next day. He hasn't been able to sleep. But but Tank tells him, you will tonight, for sure. He makes... What did you think <laughs> of Tank as a, as a character actor, by the way? Um, a little, a little overacts. He overacts. Um, he's not a great actor, but... In the commentary, I... I, I give him a pretty good rating just because I love his enthusiasm. Yeah, he's, he seems real enthusiastic. Uh, yeah, and there's no bad acting. As you point out, it's a little over the top. But everyone else is so gloom and doom. I kind of like that he's, you know, he's a true child of Zion, right? He wasn't born in the Matrix. He was born in Zion. I love – that's the thing. He alone sells Zion. I mean, you don't know anything about Zion until the second movie. Yeah, that's true. But just the way he talks about Zion as home – because I'm always talking about this, whether it's the Lord of the Rings movies or this movie. I always use the William Adama quote from the, from the pilot from Battlestar where he says, you know, it's not enough to survive. We must be worthy of survival. Another way of saying that is, what are we fighting for? So you needed something to be fighting for other than just your lives. And fighting for Zion and free humans... They had to sell with very little exposition because we never see Zion. And so just Tank's personality and the way he talked about it. Plus, he turns out that he's the brother of Nona Gay um, in Reloaded uh, in Revolutions, daughter of Marvin Gay, who's one of the most gorgeous women on the planet and totally kicks ass. And it's one of my favorite character additions. Uh, him and Dozer are her brothers, and they die, and that's why Link takes over in the s- second two sequels. But wait, that person? She's Marvin Gaye's daughter. Yeah, yeah, that really? full-bodied, uh, that full-bodied black woman with the curly hair that's just gorgeous. That's that's Marvin Gaye's daughter, model oh. slash actress. What's her name? Nona Gaye. N O N A Gaye. Nona Gaye. Oh man. Yeah, if you ever get to my Reloaded commentary, I'm like, I start going really over the top because you, they get to the spice orgy scene, you know, like from Dune, and everyone's fucking hate that. Grinding. Thing. Anyway, I, yeah. I I used to hate it. Now I like like parts of it. 
Um, but they do a slow-mo close-up on Harold Perrineau just grinding up on Nona Gay. And you know that took a half to a full day of shooting, and I just said, God Let's damn you, Harold Perrineau. Let's get the shot again. Yeah, do the yeah. shot. One more I time was like, with the God shot. God damn you, Perrineau, for getting to grind up on Nona Gay for a whole day of shooting. I, anyways, anyways, uh, back, to, back to Tank. Mm, I like him. All right, As the he's, operator. He's fine. He makes pop culture jokes of pop culture that he could not have possibly seen having been outside the Matrix. Hey, Mikey, what? I think he likes it. It's like, uh, there's right, no... Right, right. Guys, what? That one always seems so fucking weird to me. See, but, but anyway. that's, the, that's the nervous system thing. I just don't care. I, I know you don't. You're, see, this is the thing. You're, you're a, you are a delightful, non-jaded, uh, wonderful person. Uh, I, I see the flaws, and I just can't unsee them. And I then, do love, though, when, when he starts the training scenario for the first time. Maybe this is where you're going. He's a machine. <laughs> He right before he says he jumps in the. Uh, by the way, the the, um, the cartridges look like mini discs, which I like. Yeah, yeah, those are great. I've always lo- I still love mini discs. I, I wish mini discs were still a thing. But uh, he was like, yeah, basic, like none of this shit. Like I'm just, and then he's just like, what is this thing? He's like combat training, combat training. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 cute. I like that too. Um, Okay, just bookmark for later when we get to the sort of post-Matrix talk. Mm-hmm. Cyber brains and Ghost in the Shell. I really want to get back to this. I'm uh, not talking about a full-on talk of Ghost in the Shell. I'm talking okay, about right, good. how the Ghost in the Shell t- t- uh, style cyber brains could explain a little bit more satisfactorily him being able to control machines outside the matrix. Yeah. So anyway, right. so he's doing the combat training. Combat training. Drunken his, fighting is one, which is great. His uh, his uh, response, uh, or his, oh, how's he doing? He's a machine, which is our first sort of hint that there's something different about him. Um, and he then looks up and says, you know, Morpheus talks to him. He goes, I know Kung Fu. Show me. And then just with like that gong, they just are into the world. And this to me is actually the the greatest, maybe one of the greatest fight scenes of all time. Um, it's good it's good no i i think it might be i think it's by far the best in the movie and it might be one of the best of that's that's been made if you look at the way that they've done the cuts the way that they sort of kinetically move the shots are so clear the editing is amazing they they actually let it like linger on the action the choreography's just out of control fantastic there's no sort of like quick cuts to kind of like fool you into thinking something more exciting than what's happening on screen is which happening. never happens in the matrix movies by the way even in yeah. the fights you don't like or the CGI fights, they never pull away. They always are extended shots, which you have to appreciate even if you don't love all those fights. Well, sometimes the angles kind of switch in ways that I don't like. And these, like, follow follow the cuts that they make. They're always so understandable and so intuitive. They they just keep that beautiful. And also, like, everyone's trying different fighting styles or doing different things. There's that weird sort of, like, shaky, like, I'm going to punch you, but I'm not, that he sort of does when he does that little sideways run. Yeah, I mean... Everyone's so well. Keanu is does Neo. some. We never see Neo like that ever again. He's smiling. He's cocky. We we never see Neo smile again. Really, after that scene. Yeah, no. He, he, he feels was... so good. His body's rebuilt. He's pumped to be doing this stuff. He's so cocky. Yeah, and then you know he gets his ass kicked, and uh, and you know it's like, how did I beat you? You're too fast. He's like, do you think it has anything to do with my muscles in this place? Do you think that's air you're breathing? And you know that's that that is that great thing where it is like okay, you know that's mind over matter stuff and the uh and that this is that i love that line about the breathing because you can see and again keanu reeve when he has big drama can't pull it off but small bits he can do really well when morpheus says you think that's air you're breathing 
And he just stops breathing. He stops breathing for a second, and you're like right with him. You're like, oh my god, he's going to suffocate because there is no actual oxygen in here. It's such a cool idea. Well, and the thing that I really love also about this and scene... that's the Yoda moment, by the way, where he goes, hmm? Mm-hmm. No, he doesn't do that. He goes, yes, he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he raises his eyebrows and then goes, hmm. If you put he Frank go, Oz in Morpheus' oh, body, that's what exactly Morpheus is what I am. Yeah, no, okay. Come on. Uh, but uh, but uh, Morpheus doesn't sweat in that scene. Even when Neo's doing Neo, this super fast thing? Neo's sweating. Neo's sweaty. His hair has, he has perspiration and his hair has gotten wet. Morpheus is kept dry at all times. And they redid shots and like patted him down and make sure that he's never actually exerting himself. He does get scared, though, when Neo gets close to hitting him. Well, he's just getting impressed, not scared exactly. But, but you know, he's surprised at least. Yeah, but he's not. But he's not actually exerting himself because that's not real. You know what I mean? And he's not in a. He's not actually in a fight for survival. But they have, you know, uh, uh, Keanu kind of drenched, which is a great other piece of art direction that was really well done. I have actually have a big problem with the whole. Um, if you die in the Matrix, you die in the real world. Yeah, me too. We're, and we're about to get there. So at that okay, point, okay. you know, he kind of... There's sort of a weird petulant thing that's like, I know what you're trying to make me do. And I, I was like, well, what? Make you better at combat? I don't understand what you're, compl- what you're complaining about. But he's like, oh, I can only show you the way. Then they do the little jump scene. He fails. Everyone's like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Shut up. Uh, and then... Uh, I love the come, jump scene. It's a great jump scene. That's so great. many reasons. Can, can I give you a number of reasons why I love the jump scene? Is it because of Keanu's acting, where he says, to himself, well, okay, you can do this. Okay. I, I think that's great, actually. I think it's a great performance by him. But, so, you forgot to mention, when Morpheus Neo first start fighting, um, who is it that runs into, is it, I think Mouse runs into the, the mess, and they're all there, and they're going, Look Morpheus at these neural no, 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 before that, he's like, Morpheus is fighting Neo, and they, like, jump over the tables, they're all so pumped, like, this is the thing about great movies, that's, we know that some people are more skeptical of Morpheus and Neo than others on the crew, but that scene, everyone but Cypher jumps over the table, that's how pumped they are, it, it communicates everything, we know Mouse is a believer, Tank is a believer, you know, the uh, the European duo, the, the woman who's, what, Swiss or something, German, and um but she's not, she, well she's not until her death scene <laughs> right 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 but um but uh and right and the fact that i i, I, I like this like well, i love how they they can watch it but it's in black and white in slow motion and in my commentary it's I was like, like clipping and shitty well i said in 1999 that's exactly how streaming video was you know it's like perfect it, it makes sense within the story but it's also a nod towards 1999 again the Wachowski brothers do that on purpose. I don't know. That's what makes the movies great for me. Don't really know what the hell they're doing. I just think but, they're of their time. I think they're just great. Yeah. And so so they're watching the fight. And then, you know, Mouse is going for the jump. Mouse is going, well, what if he makes it? And they keep saying, no, no one makes it on the first time. But what if he does? And you see Mouse is hoping. Uh, Trinity is really hoping. I think she says, like, come on, come on. Like, very quietly to herself. And, uh... And Cypher, by the way, when they're watching the fight and Neo's getting his ass kicked for a while, Cypher is just smiling his ass off and looking around and seeing if anyone else is smiling. He loves seeing oh, Neo get his ass that. kicked. Yeah, yeah. He's always looking at Trinity, you know, to, to uh. see if they can connect. And, um, and so he's smiling. And then there's the jump. What I love about the jump 
And again, we can talk about the inconsistency of the breaking and bending of rules thing, but for this construct, I, I have a question I'm going to ask you right after this point. <laughs> From a pure entertainment standpoint, what I love about the jump, where he's going, free your mind, free your mind, free your mind, they don't even sell that he's going to make it for a split second. The second yeah, right. he goes over the side, he goes straight down, and then... He hits the ground, but it sort of cushions him. Yeah. And then he smacks, and he comes out of the matrix or the or the construct. Well, it like cushions his, him it, once, and then when he falls and does it again, it just smacks against the ground. It's well, like, this whole the point, fuck, the dude? point, and, no, that's a point. Every construct <laughs> is meant to to do one thing, right? The lady with the red dress construct is meant to do one thing. This that's construct is meant to do one thing. They didn't want to kill him, but they needed to hurt him bad enough. So that he would internalize that getting injured in the Matrix makes you injured outside the Matrix. That This is when we are told that if you die in the Matrix, you die outside the Matrix. Now, uh, a few things about this. One, if your mind is destroyed in the Matrix, I totally would buy that that would... You know that you, that your that it would destroy your mind in the real world. I guess it depends a little bit on sort of your philosophical, scientific, religious views. If there's a difference between the brain and the mind, you know, I happen to think that they're connected inextricably, and so that if your mind was killed anywhere, that you would die anywhere. But for getting shot in the heart, and then you're coughing up blood in the real world, exactly. Just, that, that never that's, really. That's where yeah. it, that's where I really hate it because you could have done a kind of thing where it's like, basically, like if you if you get too stressed out and freak out, you can have a heart attack, right? You could have that. Right. You could have. You could even still have the thing that's like the mind makes it real and have like fucking nosebleeds and shit. And you could have it so that basically like there's like zombie rules. Like if you get shot in the head, you are fucked. But right. if you're not shot in the head, like, your mind doesn't think that it has an injury, so everything's fine. You know what I mean? Like, there could have been all these rules to make that so much more believable instead of, like, him, like, spitting up blood because he got punched in the stomach. Um, so it's like, yeah, the mind can make it real. I can sort of, like, get on board with that fiction. But what I can't get on the board with is the idea that your mind can make you either bleed internally in your stomach or make it so that you're, uh, yeah, you're bleeding in your, in your lip. Um, that, that's ridiculous. There's a really cool part that I noticed while doing the commentary. You might have noticed this. Normally, when Trinity or 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 or, or Fish or uh, Morpheus or Neo um, gets hit hard in the Matrix, they'll like cough up blood in the Matrix, and then they'll cough up blood in the real world. But when he's getting his ass kicked by Smith at the end of the first Matrix, before he turns the tide and wins that fight, he's getting pummeled. You see him cough up blood in the Matrix, and then there's like a second or two delay, and then he coughs up blood in the Matrix. Sorry, he he coughs right. outside the Matrix, and then so, so Smith is punching him in the Matrix, and then it it the the camera moves back to the ship, and you see his body plugged in, and he coughs up blood, and, th- and then it goes back to, into the Matrix, and he hasn't coughed up blood yet, and then he coughs up blood, basically saying he just coughed up blood outside the Matrix before inside the matrix which makes no sense that could have just been a framing device yeah I think from a filming a standpoint device. but there, i was sort of like oh it's interesting you know because mm-hmm. this doesn't really make much sense anyways but maybe there's more going on but again don't don't you think this is just related conceptually to the what the, what's it called that you mentioned before the residual self-image blah 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 blah. yeah i i my, my I guess my point is that like i feel like they could have done something that would 
not be something that would take you out of the movie and make you go like, wait a minute, that's that doesn't make any sense. They could have like they could have still made it like the, there were consequences of the yep. of that world completely. Like you need to have consequences or right. else it's boring. And you still could have had consequences that didn't then make you think like if take you out and go like, wait, scientifically that's stupid and makes no sense. So I feel like that was a mistake. But I will say, as cheesy as it is at the end of Reloaded, where he saves Trinity and pumps her heart and takes the bullet out and looks horrible, it's super cheesy. However... But, but again, that could work with a cardiac arrest, right? Like, that could still be something that your brain does to you, is that you get stressed out and your heart stops. No, but uh, yes, yes. I'm making a sort of a, a wider, less specific point, which is that... Morpheus is only partially right when he says you die in the Matrix, you die in the real world. When he's, it's the same way you say no one's ever beaten an agent before. Who's the first one to beat an agent? Neo. Who's the first one to save someone who's dead in the Matrix? Neo. So the point being, I don't know if Morpheus is aware that this is a power that Neo can have, but what it proves is that structurally you don't have to die in the real world by dying in the matrix i kind of well, like and, that and we find that out at the beginning of this at the end of this movie too that that's the case we have our first rebirth there but uh what were we saying yeah keep moving you're good all right cool 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 so so after so that stuff's great um then the sentinels find them and one of my, my favorite line of the whole fucking movie is given they're killing machines made for one thing killing no actually two things uh, search and destroy oh um hmm that's an interesting this is, sentence. This is what I call the this is what I call the for what problem <laughs> that this movie and the Lord of the Rings movies and all epic movies have where someone stops a sentence midway just so another character can say for what? <laughs> you know? And it's not even one thing. It's a killing right. machine not made for killing. No, but I'm, anyway. I'm always like I'm like writers out there, you don't need the for what. It's yeah, like agreed. So in the first time I really noticed this, and this is this is where the I, I do want to go to the end of this movie, but since you know we only have limited time, I do want to start bridging to the other properties a little bit without completely losing this thread. So okay. when he fights the five hundred Smiths in uh, Reloaded, which whatever you think about the fight actually turns out to basically be a test by the Oracle, although we're never told as much, but I'm pretty sure the Oracle knows that that's going to happen since the second Seraph closes the door, Smith shows up um, and he, and the Oracle needs Neo to realize how dangerous Smith is, but also how useful he might be later on. Anyways, when they, when, when he gets rid of the Smiths or, or, you know, he, 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 what's that wrestling move called? Like the fireman's carry, you know, where he... Yeah, yeah. I know, uh, I know is that called about. a suplex? No, a suplex, a, suplex? a suplex is sort of taking somebody by the, by the stomach and slamming their shoulders onto the ground above and behind you. That's what okay, well, anyway, is. so he's, there's like 200 smiths on top of, it, of him, and they're all just saying, it's ine- it is inevitable, it is inevitable. And he, you know, he shoots them up, he does a Superman thing, he goes away. And they unplug them, and uh, Morpheus and, and Trinity are there. And <laughs> it, Morpheus goes, it was Smith. And Neil's like, yeah. And Morpheus goes, there was more than one? And Neil's like, there's a lot more than one. And he goes, what was he doing to you? And Neil goes, I, I don't know, but I know what it felt like. Pause. Trinity. What did it feel like? Pause. Neo. It felt like dying. Small things like that, but sloppy writing in the second two movies that you don't really get in the first movie. 
And the, all, all you need to say is, I know what it felt like. It felt like dying. You don't need Trinity to say for what. Yeah. And the problem is not just using that ever. It's just that they use that a lot. Yeah. They use, they use that device a lot. And that's a little amateurish. It is. And I think it just reflects the bigger issue with the second two movies is that... They've got Hollywood, man. They just got well, the, it, it's Hollywood. Less it to do with uh, no. I, see, I would, I would disagree. I think the first movie was very Hollywood in a positive sense. That's why it was so successful. Okay, well, I'm talking about I'm talking about being Hollywood in the negative. Hollywood sense. cheesy. For me, it's more about minimalism. It's it's, a, it's the lack of minimal. It's the lack of restraint. Lack of minimalism. Right, and that's what Hollywood is, man. Hollywood is the kind of thing where it's like, no, this needs to be bigger. The stakes need to be bigger, and you need to, no. It can't just be a guy diffusing a bomb in a building it needs to be that there's nuclear devices all across la that are going to destroy the world like you know that's what fucking hollywood does to shit and it's like you know anyway well i had no problem with sort of the high stakes of the i know i know i wasn't saying that but i was just saying like sort of amping up in this kind of like amateur like like this these like shitty line reads that you're saying this for what stuff like that is totally something that a, a producer that has no business interfering with the creative process throws in there right um yeah Ugh. Anyway, I, I feel you on that. Well, going back to where the Sentinels were, uh, I still to this day laugh every single time I see Morpheus put on his cute little hat. <laughs> they turn off the lights and he Love puts it. on his little beret and it's like, I'm just going to wait for these Sentinels and I'm going to look good doing it. And fuck you, I'm Lawrence Fishburne. So I, I would argue that Lawrence Fishburne is the only actor across the three movies that you could not replace. Uh, oh, I don't think you could replace Neo. Not once you've seen him. That would be weird. No, no, but I'm saying the character would before any casting or anyone seen anything. I see. The, ca- yes, the casting agreed. of Morpheus was well, the best casting of any, everything. I disagree. I still think Agent Carrie Smith was more. No, Agent Smith. Oh, no, you're much right. Much more you're important. Right. Hugo, Hugo Weaving was great. That was, yeah. I mean, his whole bizarre speech pattern stuff is so necessary. Um, anyway, so Sentinels, get, we get to see the Sentinels. They look great. Um, we have to talk about the agents at some point, by the way, man. Yeah, I have a we lot will. of theories and questions we, about we agents. Got, we got stuff for that. So then they go to the point where they, uh, where Cypher's up at night to... Uh, talking with the agents and neo comes in and but doesn't know what the code looks like so he can't tell that he's meeting with the agents meeting with the enemy and that's why he's so like spooked when he walks in he's like neo god you scared me and he realizes no what? Else no he's looking. not plugged in he's at this he's computer. not he's not plugged in but he's setting up the rendezvous and he's, oh, he's actually, setting up i know he, and he I turns comment. off all the screens you notice that right, right? he right. turns off all the screens except for the yeah. ones that have code because he didn't want to see that he's in a building or there's anything else well and i commented on the fact that as i mentioned earlier i love that they didn't try and do a bait and switch with cypher that we as the audience see what's brilliant about it is we as the audience know mostly from the beginning that he's probably a bad guy yeah but they set him up in the scenario to where you can understand why they wouldn't think he was a bad guy necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so I'm watching that scene, and uh, you know I'm sort of praising it in the, that whole scene in the commentary, and then boom, right after that scene, he's eating steak, drinking wine, and listening to harp. So, so I my, just love that they just cut straight to the bad guy stuff. Is my awesome. interpretation is that, that that is what is actually happening. While he's setting up there, and that's why he's so fucking freaked out. He's doing this is why he's doing it alone, and it's why it's doing it in the middle of the night with all the lights off, and it's why he's so goddamn scared when Neo shows so up. So he's not plugged in. You're saying when he's he not plugged agents? in. Well, see, here's a, then this is the question. It's like so. I think he's starting to meet the agents and trying to figure out where to go in and and jack in. Somehow, then he plugs himself in, which I don't think is possible. So I feel like that whole scene doesn't really make sense. But you know. Uh, I don't uh, know. You like, could it's say just, that he was tr- practice, uh, practicing in a construct or something. 
yeah, but like, how do you then take the thing out your head? Like, you have to have so someone else needs to like call and do the other operational stuff. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's, you actually it's don't need someone to take it out of your head. That's that's just a plot device uh, or, right. of imagery. Because once you open your eyes, you could easily reach behind and take it out. Right, but Neo you can't get you can't beginning. get in or out without somebody else doing those data connections for you or whatever. Who cares? Point being, I think it's a little bit of logical inconsistency, but it doesn't matter. It could have just been on a fake mission that wasn't a mission, but yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I kind of like your idea, though. Maybe that he wasn't meeting with them directly. Maybe he was creating a construct version of himself um, to meet with them. Like, you know, like, like a program. Like maybe he designs a program, a cipher program. That's a great idea, dude. I never I thought of that. That could well make done. more sense because, because like, and would be cool. He still says he still says the thing like, you know, when I taste this, it's juicy and delicious, and you know, ignorance is bliss. It would be difficult for him to be having that sentiment if it was not really him. But that yeah. said, it still makes a little bit more sense that he's not actually going in himself. Um, Man, one of the great dangerous. line readings of all time. Yeah, because yeah, you, yeah. you know the ignorance is bliss line is coming, but he's just sitting there looking at the steak, chewing it. He's like, ignorance is bliss. And then the Gosh. heart plays right <laughs> away. Yeah, that was great. beautiful. And it, my, my theory was, you know, he's an idiot because even if he managed to succeed and give them Morpheus's, give, give them, get them Morpheus and not die, they would have just killed Cypher. They wouldn't have inserted I don't him think back so. into the Matrix. No, I don't think so. I think Why would I they think, care about Why? why? I think why the machines they? honor promises. Uh, the architect claims that they do, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think they're they're right to do that. I don't, I don't know. Although I, again, this is w- w- again we don't know continuity wise in terms of the Wachowskis' theories of the Matrix, uh, what what they had. But uh, yeah, I, I would buy it. I would buy that they would honor it. Making some yeah. great points here. Talk about the Matrix. I love this. Keep it coming. <laughs> All right, let's so go. Then, right, let's so then, uh, let's then, just try and get through a couple more quick ones okay, of okay, the first okay. movie, I'll, so we can talk quick. about some we'll other stuff. We'll go quick, right? So the next morning, Mouse talks to Neo, and he actually brings up, I think, the most interesting point in the whole Matrix. That's one of my favorite dialogues in any movie. Did you ever that have whole a tasty thing. wheat? He's like, well, you didn't either. It's like, well, that's my point. Like, what right. if the, what they thought was tasty wheat was actually something else? And what if like they can't get chicken right, so everything tastes like chicken? And da da da. I was like. The in- most interesting, like, technical little shit is there. And then everyone's like, shut up, mouse. And I was like, um. The digital pimp hard at work. I oh, yeah. That, I mean, that part's less interesting to me. But oh, I, it was great. Because oh, he talks about talks about impulses. That's what yeah, makes yeah, us yeah, different yeah. than machines. He's right about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. can I just jump in on that really quick? Sure. This is the whole thing I was talking about before, is the Wachowskis are constantly hinting that... Let's forget about the Matrix within the Matrix thing. We'll see if we'll get time for that later, because you and I have both talked about the Matrix and Matrix. Let's assume that the, you know, it's quote unquote real the way they present it. That there is a Matrix, and then outside of it, you're in as close to normal reality as you can get. But because of sensation and perception, and because of all the other um, interfaces between us and reality, the tasty weak question, you don't need the Matrix to have that conversation. My point being, the Wachowskis are constantly hinting that being outside of the Matrix or in it is not as different as it seems on the surface. Yeah, Because you could be much happier in the Matrix and miserable outside of the Matrix like Cypher. And, and Cypher has a great line, if, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me here, in one of the best scenes ever where he has seemingly killed Tank 
and he's starting to pull out the plugs of this, the, re, the remaining humans one after one while giving his big, evil, long uh, villain speech to Trinity. And there's a great scene where he straddles, where he jumps on Morpheus and, like, straddles him. And he's like, God damn, I wish I was there when they break you. And then he's got that really creepy one where he's, like, on Trinity and creeping up on her. And, but he, but. Yeah, that was some great creeping. But tr- Grade A but tr- creeping. Yeah, but Trinity goes, but Cypher, the Matrix isn't real. Goes, oh, I disagree, Trinity. I think the Matrix can be even more real than the real world. And. I'm doing my commentary, and I'm forced to agree with him because it's the whole dream in the way. I don't know about you, man. I have really vivid dreams sometimes, and at times does feel as or more real than normal reality, at least in the moment. And so, you know, the question is that Cypher's really bringing up here, if you will philosophize with me for a minute, is does the feeling of reality of one reality or another make it more real. And uh, phrased other other ways, does the realness of a reality have to do with sort of the feeling that it's real? Or is it more the sort of Christian, you know, uh, you know, this is, you know, this is the real and this is the not real kind of thing. Or I guess yeah, I, the Greek. I think it's tr- I think it's truth versus simulation is is the only thing. I have nothing so to do with it's, feeling it's empirical. Perception. It's yeah. empirical. Yeah, in, in this movie, and yeah, absolutely. And something else that, that is great about the movies that they do start in the first one, but for sure, basically, after the first movie, every cool major character edition is black, a woman, or some sort of minority or combination. When you get to Zion, almost they do, everybody They do a very there, good job not making it all a bunch of straight white guys. Yeah, and yeah. they're all very compelling characters. I think the Niobe-Morpheus relationship is so much more compelling than the Neo-Trinity relationship. Agreed. Um, and uh, it, that, it's that relationship that keeps me coming back to the third movie, just because they hint it in the second. It gets so cool in the third when they're doing the Death Star run together up in the cockpit and everything. He's like, shit, she's got a fat ass. God, I love her. She's so cool. Jada Pinkett Smith kills it. <laughs> Commander Locke. Commander Locke, who's a hard-ass uh, black dude commanding the Zion forces, dude, he was in a version of Othello, like in the '90s. It's amazing, a Shakespearean actor. That guy, love him. Oh, I don't um, think I've ever seen him. I don't think I've seen that version. Is he's, it film he's or fantastic. like, or like, do you see it live? No, it's a movie. It, Anthony Hopkins plays uh, the the big bad uh, Iago. Guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you that I saw a reverse cast version of of uh, Othello with Patrick Stewart? As yes, I know about that. It was, ridi- it was so funny because it just doesn't work. Like the inherent like power struggles and like the difference like in reality makes it so that it never totally gets set up correctly. It was it was right. a really interesting thing to show like no matter how great the acting is, like the reality of our actual cultures and the inherent like inequalities can't, you can't reset your mind and see it totally differently. It was, uh, it was interesting. So when you see the second two movies, especially in the diversity and not just the diversity, but that so many of the characters who are in charge or who are main characters are people of color or women or both. Now, I think the Wachowskis were just very, progressive in that sense i I think casting diversity for diversity's sake is a perfectly good reason and not only that but you know i'm so sick of the you know we can have one black guy and one woman (laughs) point being 
they didn't do it just for that reason. And I've heard a lot of commentaries. So the Wachowskis don't do audio commentaries, but they did have uh, Cornell West, who's a really, really famous philosopher from Princeton, and Ken Wilber, another philosopher, do commentaries for all three movies. And Cornell West, who's black, who's progressively, you know, who's very progressive politically, he's Christian. He's like one of these Christian philosophers who's like very, very left-wing progressive, whatever. Talks about how it would make sense that <laughs> the majority of the people who would want out of the Matrix are non-white people, right? Because on <laughs> average, white people have it the best. I mean, p- most most people that, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a shit ton of sense. It had actually. to be Cypher that was the bad guy. You know, it had to be the white guy. Because yeah, he liked guy. it. It was, you know, he, he had it okay. Yeah. And so... He never had it that shitty. Right. And so, if you know, in 2015... Wow, that's so interesting, actually. Well, here's the thing. In 1999, this would be impractical. Because in 99, even if you were poor and thought there was something wrong with the world, you wouldn't have even access to the computer equipment necessary to get out unless you transubstantiated, whatever. That's a different story. But in 2015, man... I know Africans who are poor as shit who have full internet access on like their cell phones and all sorts of stuff, and they are exactly the types who would who would want out. And I talk about this in my, in my podcast, dude. I'm not making this up, man. Fucking African dudes I know, whether they're like the musicians we worked with or the ones I've lived with in South Africa and Botswana, love the fucking Matrix movies. Fucking love them. <laughs> Um, seriously, because there's so many people of color, there's so many black actors empowered, and it's not like, oh, we're just casting a lot of black actors. Like, no, they're great casting choices. And, you know, it's just interesting people somewhere like Africa. I mean, let's put it this way. My friends who are people of color, uh, whether they're Latino Americans or Africans or African Americans, like The Matrix at a much higher rate than my white friends. And I think there's a number of reasons for it. And I do wonder if part of the reason the second two movies didn't do as well, other than having lots of problems, were that there weren't as many white characters as people are used to. Yes, you have Neo and Trinity, but you're spending most of the time with people of color, especially in the third movie. But uh, I, I won't go into negative. No, I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think. But the so, bottom line though, is, honestly. the bottom there, there's, there's, doesn't like, change the my point. The problem with those that, movies is that they are problematic movies. Right, but but doesn't change the point that my non-white friends like the movies overall better than my white friends. In fact, I studied in Botswana in fall of 03. So Matrix Reloaded had just come out that spring. You and I probably saw it together. I can't remember. I assume we did, um, which, would be, which would have been the spring of sophomore year. And I, I, liked the, I liked Reloaded at that point. I wasn't crazy about it. I was still looking forward to Revolutions. And at one of my host family's places in Botswana... My my buddy, uh, the cousin of the family who was living there, because, you know, in Africa, it's fucking, you've got like 50 people living in a house. But th- these were like middle class or upper, upper middle class. And he had a, a VHS copy of Reloaded somehow. And mm-hmm. he was like, dude, he was like, this movie's better than The Matrix. I'm like, no, shut the fuck up. He was like, he was like, all right, well, maybe it's not better, but he, he, I'll never forget it. <laughs> he goes... He goes, I, I think I'm going to have this quote right. He goes, Matrix was the bomb. Reloaded was the ill. That's what he said. <laughs> and I didn't know what he meant until I rewatched the movie in the sense of just so entertaining. Not as good as the first one. Just so entertaining. And, and the hilarious thing, man, is 
we watched that numerous times, and all of our buddies, all of his buddies, would come and we'd watch The Matrix, and they fucking loved it. And then we went to see Reloaded, it, or Revolutions in the theater in Africa, and people were booing, booing. I'm not even really? t- yes, booing the movie. Not really towards the end, until the end with Neo and Trinity, where it just gets so horrible. But I, actually, yeah, I saw Return of the King in Botswana too, and people were grumbling at the end of that movie. Um, even though, by the way, I timed it out. Um, we sort of the, the quick sidebar at the epilogue of Return of the King is twenty minutes. So the movie before that is three hours and forty minutes, and then there's twenty minutes of epilogue. So I think that's kind of a bullshit criticism for me when people are like, "Oh, you know, half the movie was just all the goodbyes." It's like, no, one tenth of the movie was goodbyes. Revolution title yeah, far more After three hours and forty minutes, you know, you need, come on. But that's yeah, the whole point. After twelve hours of I, movies, you need some closure. I know. I agree with you. You said you liked it say, in our in our conversation. I do. I do. For me, but I cannot begrudge anybody being like fucking like anybody being like. I am so done with this. Like, let me be done. Like, I understand where they're coming from. Well, the bottom line is, it's still, Return of the King still has the highest IMDb rating, made the most money, and won eleven Academy Awards. So I think ultimately people were cool with that. Rock, but yeah, anyway, I guess, man. But anyways, still let's let's, let's walk back here a little bit. Let's walk back. Here. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so let me let me let me roll through a little. We'll go through a little quick. Uh, try and talk uh, about stuff that I can connect bigger picture stuff with other movies, animatrix. Well, you know, whatever. so the, ne- the next big thing that happens is the Oracle. But oh. I think we've already touched. A Gloria lot of Foster, it. may she rest in peace. I oh. mean, <laughs> who would not want that woman to be your spiritual advisor? Seriously, I mean, who? who <laughs> Even when you find out that she's been manipulating him, but it's for his own good. God damn, that's exact. If I had to pick a spiritual advisor, that's exactly who I would pick. She's got a. She's got an incredible charisma. Actually, I'm going to take back my thing about Hugo Weaving. She is actually by far, I think, the most charismatic actor in the movie. She's unbelievable. Yeah, but she is was ultimately replaceable. I actually love the, the replaced um, Oracle in the third movie. I have reasons for that. Well, we got our little we got our little adorable Buddhist boy with the spoon, which which g- makes me giggle every single time I see it. And you see the other children, the other potentials, uh, and then we go in there. She does the thing where she warns him of something, and that's what makes him actually turn to break the vase. And she actually like says it there. Uh, what's really going to bake your noodle later is that you know bake your would noodle. you have broken it. Would you have broken it if I hadn't said anything? But the funny thing that I keep thinking about is that I don't think Neo ever once actually considers that. <laughs> I don't think Neo ever once is like, gee, I wonder. No, he does. Mm. Well, he definitely considers it before they meet up again in movie two because she goes, Candy, and he goes, do you already know if I'm going to take it? And she goes, I wouldn't be much of an oracle if I didn't. And Neo goes, well, if you already know, then how can I make a choice? And this is where the movie gets really disturbing and cool for me. And the Oracle just looks at him and goes, you're not here to make a choice. You've already made the choice. You're here to understand it. And this is the whole free will determinism thing, which is that the Oracle is empowering these people and offering them apparent choices. But when it comes right down to it, she is basically saying that for the most part, these choices have been made and we just need to understand them, which would make sense. How could she be an oracle if people had a radical free will, right? I mean, first of Mm -hmm. all, the mechanics of how she's an oracle make zero sense, especially that she's able to understand stuff outside the Matrix. I could sort of understand inside the Matrix, although I do have a possible theory for this as well. Um, I don't want to jump ahead that much. The vase thing is amazing. And as I say in the commentary, that is where someone like me at that age falls in love with the movie like that. Because just that little paradox 
you could just think about and talk about forever, you know, and uh, and that's the whole point. And I think it's that it's Neo's, as you point out, it's Neo's sort of lack of thinking about it that she reads on his face. I think where she immediately says, "Okay, this guy has no idea what's going on. I'm gonna have to take." I love she does the palm reading and like checks his teeth. Like it's mm-hmm. totally a show for his sake, you know. She's not really yeah. doing any of that stuff. Um, when you uh, first saw the movie, did you think she was human? Hmm. I think I assumed she was. I, I assumed. I assumed. I assumed she was a plugged-in human who had who was somewhat no, I kind of off the grid. No, I actually I don't think I did think she was human. Because I mean, they don't reveal that she's a program until she meets uh, Neo in the in the second movie. That's one of my favorite exchanges of all time, by the way. Their second meeting. Well, look oh, at you. Said, Turned out all right, she... didn't you? Well, have a sit. Have a sit here. I feel like I feel like I knew something was up because they talked about how she's been here since the beginning of the resistance, and that's been a long time ago. That's a good point. Maybe I never really had thought about it, but I feel like I knew that she wasn't supposed to be a normal person. Otherwise, she also wouldn't be in the Matrix. Well, I guess. Well, let me put so, it this way: I didn't think she was a program from the machine world. Okay, that, I think right, maybe that. I was considering the AI possibility, or you know, but I don't think. Let I, I me. Mean, I mean, come on, who saw her? Who saw her as a co-designer of the Matrix, which was such a brilliant twist? No, yeah, that is an interesting twist. No, I, I think I actually may have seen her potentially as actually a supernatural force, and I didn't know whether or not what sort of level of supernatural. Um, well, she is in a way supernatural stuff that they they were going to incorporate or how they were going to incorporate it. And I hate the way that they did. God damn it! But um, but uh, I think I might have guessed that. But I'm not sure I really gave it that much thought. Honestly, I, I might have just thought like it's a person who can do magical stuff. Yeah, that 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 uh, that that was that was a great scene. I mean, the whole thing. I also like you know that oh, everything's sort of tied together. You know, you're the one when you know you're in love. Yeah, like you just know it. Balls to bones. Same thing. Balls to bones. Uh, and I didn't realize that she said balls to bones until this time. And I've seen that movie a lot. I have. I was like, did she really say balls to bones? Balls like, to bones. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. I kind of like that. And uh, wait, oh, I really love here. Like, so, so uh, wait, uh, do you want to keep talking about the Oracle? Or because I, cause I got the, the next scene is him giving Cypher the coldest burn of all time. <laughs> the coldest burn? Yeah. What do you mean? Did you. Did you Oh God! Um, oh, where he smi- Cyber smiles at him, and he just walks and on. Neo just just like doesn't even respond. Yeah. He just like looks at him like confused well, he, and just walks know, away. And this is what's great about Neo. First of all, by the way, the Oracle calls him not too bright. You forgot to mention that. Where yeah, I know. I do. I do goes, like oh, that. I can is... see why she likes you. And Neo goes, "Who? Not too bright though." And yeah. Smith also makes fun of his intelligence numerous times, and so. I think this is another great thing it, it is the self-awareness of the movie. Some people hate self-aware movies. When it's done well, I love it. And that's why it gets me through some of the cheesier sections because the self-awareness and self-referential and the nature of the movie is great. They're constantly calling him slow or dumb. But, you know, but he's not slow in the ways that matter. And this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. He really has trouble internalizing you know, large amounts of facts up until the architect. Once he gets to the architect, then his brain starts operating on a new level. But he does have a sort of innate wisdom, but he just on the outside, he just sounds like Keanu Reeves. He sounds kind of dumb. And I've actually heard that he's very smart in real life. I just, it's just mm-hmm. the way that he comes off. He's very, 
you know, he's like a spiritual seeker. That's why he plays the role so brilliantly. I don't know if he is a Buddhist. He's played the Buddha before. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah which is almost blasphemy. Uh, sure, but yeah. But the point is, he has that sort of Buddhist. Um, I don't know, outward Buddhist, uh, outward Buddhist slowness going. And uh, if if you don't mind, you can just talk about the first movie or about all three. How were you with with sort of the heavy religious aspects of of the movies? I thought I thought it got pretty ham-fisted, you know. Uh, I know, I mean, he, it's the first, the beginnings of my personal Jesus Christ and Cypher being like, do you know why they're here? Yeah, Jesus, and all the little stuff just saying that you're the Messiah. Like, okay, like, yeah, fine, whatever. Uh, but the time he's actually carted out and, uh, you know, actually on a cross, essentially, with his fucking arms out, carried by machines off into the light, like, that to me, I just was like, guys, like, fucking put it back in your pants. Like, let's do a little subtlety. Well, like, yeah, let's go. Let's go pre the very end where he's Jesus. Okay, all right. yeah. yeah, that because one is just like, the only thing I would say, at least through the first two movies, is that the blend of Western and Eastern themes is so interesting that while it can be heavy-handed at times overall in terms of bringing in religion, it really remains more philosophical than religious. And even when it gets religious. It keeps the philosophy coming, and that's where the, that's where the heavy Eastern themes come from, where religion and philosophy are really intertwined. So when you're talking about you know the Buddhism aspects or the Taoism aspects, yes, they're religious elements, but they're also a lot of spiritual philosophical aspects, which I love. All right, so Cypher gets the cold ass burn on the way back from the Oracle. Uh, they get the déjà vu. Things change. That's great. Or, or as, as Trinity says, déjà vu. I love the way she right, says this. Oh, déjà vu. Goes, I don't know. I actually déjà vu. missed that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we have what is one of my favorite fight scenes, which is the fight scene where Morpheus busts out of a wall. They're hiding in the wall. He sneezes. Their position's given away. Agents come in, and then <laughs> he, there's a lot then of Jesse, there's a lot of grunting. I, I comment on that. But it's so great it's that great. little stuff like handstand, double kick in the side, okay, can like I, all this stuff covered in dust. Like this is a perfect he's transition. To bleed all over himself. Yeah, so good. This is a perfect transition. So from here on till the end. I'm going to give you a bunch of my favorite parts of the sequels and then a bunch I didn't like. And I'll try and connect them directly to what you're talking about. One of the things I love in The Matrix Reloaded is that Morpheus has significantly enhanced fighting confidence and ability, right? It's almost like Neo taught him some shit between movies one and two because he gets his ass kicked by Smith. And not just Smith, but they have like regular SWAT team guys just beat him down. Dude, in fucking the Reloaded, the highway scene with the sword and everything, he is just taking down fuckers. You know, he he doesn't kill the agent, but he neutralizes him, and and he's able to defend himself so much better. His acrobatics on the truck, you know, when he's flying all over on the truck and getting the sword, and then he loses the sword, gets the sword. It's more it's more consistent with the guy who could theoretically jump between buildings. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I wanted yeah, more right. of in the movies. It doesn't need to be a superhero movie. But it's like you've got Trinity and then you've got Neo, but there's not a lot of like gradations in between. Well, the thing is, is that at this point, Neo hasn't done any of this stuff either. So if you have him go too crazy, but I'm, but I'm going straight then it's the not that impressive when Neo is able to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But so that's one why question this I is asked, a little restrained. One question I asked rhetorically in the beginning of Reloaded commentary is, A, is there any, is there any way that Neo could transmit some of his new combat skills, even though they'll never be capable of reaching his level. 
it seems that he would be able to teach them some things. Sure. And I think that Morpheus was enhanced in the second movie. Now, it's possible he was also fighting so hard because, in his mind, they were almost close to winning the war, right? So he was just fighting with a sort of radical, extremist, fundamentalist, you know, rage. Um, but he seemed fully in control to me, and so I love that about it. I, I wish... I wish they had, they had made Trinity a little bit of a better fighter in the second two movies, but whatever. Yeah, I can feel you on that one, for sure. Well, so after he gets his ass kicked and gets his head thrown into a toilet, which is fucking awesome, they, uh, you know, everyone sort of pulls themselves down this corridor. There's incredible kinetics. Quick question what? on this. Yeah. Are they climbing down in a set, or are they actually crawling and they invert the camera 90 degrees. I've been trying to figure that out forever. When they're, you know, when they're in they're the actually, walls... They're climbing down. They're climbing down. Are you sure? You look at, yeah, look at their gravity and look at how they're scooching themselves. I'm pretty sure. They're, okay, here's the two things. They're or it could be on, on their back. It could be on a slant, too, yeah. It could be on a slant. Yeah. They're either on their backs. That's what I meant, on their backs, yeah. Okay, so they're, on, they're not on their knee, hands and knees. No, no, no. I can tell no. you that for no, sure. No, no, they'd be on their um, backs. They're either, they're either sort of on their backs or they're actually... Uh, holding themselves up but either way it, lo- it works great and uh, it's a wonderful shot too and they just allow things to go to black the other thing we haven't talked about is that they really are not afraid to bring things to 100% black like they bring things to entirely black uh, uh, fields and then with one little strip of imagery in the center where they're all crawling down they they do that very very well um, so they they pull themselves down there's this great thing of like you know bricks and tiles popping out of the walls while Love their feet that. are dragging through gorgeous uh and the sound when, design when, in the movie is amazing yeah seriously when trinity hits the ground and you just sort of see her hand like sort of fall down in the way that her body like curves just all those kinetic little things they're done so well and they make the action just visceral and great and incredible they all escape cypher starts gets out first he shoots a dozer uh and uh and tank i gotta tell you man uh dozer is the most boring dude in the entire fucking the, movie. his only line in the whole movie is no 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 he's got one other line do you want to know what it oh, is about the food it's a simple cell protein made out of amino acids it's everything the body needs but dude, it's like god damn it you just you, know so you just cut off little mouse guy in order to say that you know what mouse guy had something to say as soon as I find out in the second movie that they're the brothers of Nona Gay, I don't give a fuck. Uh, I, they, they, okay. they gain extra. Just, it's like it's like Harold Pear now as Link. Like Link was okay in the sequels, but he's he's made cooler because you're like, well, if Nona Gay loves this guy, then he's got to be okay. So also he saves Zelda, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so 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 then Cypher starts killing people, and we get. We get the suddenly Swedish, not like this, not like, where she uh, has not had an accent the whole fucking movie, which still makes me laugh out loud. No, she does have an accent the whole movie. Dude, no way. Yes, she Nowhere does. close to She's that She's a foreign level. actress. Look, Look it up. Like She's not this. American. I know, but listen to her say, like, the digital pimp, hard at work. And then all of a sudden, she gets back her accent for, like, you know, the gravitas. No, she's, like, fucking scene. Germans. She's, like, German or Swiss. They can imitate English. Anyways, the bigger point being that the, the, the <laughs> eye ridiculous. roll the eye roll and fall that she does when she gets unplugged is awesome. It's, it gives me chills every time I see it. I love okay. that. Yeah. That's cool. 
I, I, I'm, I'm more into uh, APOC uh, being like Trinity, and then just, and then just like slam it onto the ground. Yeah, like, I thought that. Was I thought the cool. two of them played it well. I like that they have sort of an implied relationship they don't go into. Um, the, but the two brothers getting hit by Cipher, it seems like Tank gets hit way worse in terms of because he gets two blasts, and then yeah, <laughs> he comes, you know, and it when he it turns out that he's still alive, and he brings Trinity, and you see his wound. It's like, tis but a flesh wound. <laughs> like, but a flesh wound. I was like, he still has yeah. his arms and legs, but there's a giant cavity in his chest. I'm not, so, so the idea is that he dies between that movie and Reloaded. Because when Link is with Z, who's their sister, played by Nona Gay, Z says, I lost two brothers to those ships. I don't want you to go to another ship. You know, and, and, and that's the reason Link takes over is because he basically promised to the other guys that he would take over if something happened to them because that's how much they believed in Morpheus. And so, I, I don't know, I guess we assume that that, that, uh, that Tank dies of those wounds is, would be my interpretation. Oh, yeah, I like that interpretation. That's pretty good. Yeah. I probably don't have a lot of antibiotics. Um, <laughs> so, plenty of so, antivirus uh, though hey. so you know then it's all this rousing thing we gotta kill Morpheus he's gonna break and I really love the fact that the, I mean Smith's speech about about how he needs to get out and about how much he hates the Matrix and how humans are viruses I have this I mean, queued up on top, top, so top of a YouTube good. playlist watch all the time that scene it's amazing <laughs> he, goes, he, I, goes, he goes it's the smell <laughs> the smell <laughs> it's there the smell such a thing I am sickened by it. Uh, what I really love that he does is that he goes into airplane mode. He takes his little like piece out, which is like the Matrix equivalent of going into airplane mode and like disconnecting from the other machines. Oh, so he right, doesn't right, know what right. the fuck's going on. Right. That's a visual cue. Who cares? Oh, it's so good. No, but it's fantastic. Oh, you like that? I really okay, like that. that. Yeah, yeah I like the idea that like that like it's symbolic, right? He, he takes out the earpiece, and this it basically means it's like no internal communications. You can't hear me. And I can't hear you. Can I can I open up Smith for a couple minutes and ask you a couple questions about this? Sure. Because I've talked about and thought about and written and read about this a million times. So I love getting perspective. But Smith is one – the portrayal of Smith is one of the reasons that gives me confidence that they knew what they were going to do with the sequels, at least with his character. Because – he so desperately wants out of his situation as an agent, which strategically makes no sense if you're the programmer of the agent program. And by the way, is implied that the Oracle's involved with that when he calls her mom, which is a little on the nose in the third movie. Refers, Smith refers to the Oracle as mom, but he so wants out, and not, none of the other guys seem to care you know, about being in or out, their job being done. He seems to think that A, he wants to leave, B... Uh, if they kill Morpheus and destroy Zion, then he'll be free. But see, does he have any conception of what freedom is? And that's what's so brilliant about Reloaded, is that Neo gives him freedom by accident, and his reaction to freedom is to destroy all life. He spends all of the first movie, try, or, or actually the late parts of the first movie, trying to become unplugged so he's free. But as soon as he loses his purpose as an agent, he has no purpose. Therefore, he has no reason to exist, and therefore no one else has any. And that's when he becomes all nihilistic Smith. That's seed planting, not to mention Neil blowing him up from the inside as opposed to killing him. I mean, could these things all be coincidences? Could we sort of bridge from here to the end of the first movie so we can sort of talk about the bigger issues? Not that we can't talk about... Sure. uh, You know, I I mean, the the gunfight is is fine. I don't think we need to spend too much time on that. That's not one of my favorite parts. I do like how they get wet. (laughs) 
<laughs> the agents get wet once the fire thing goes on, and they're like just little sad faces as as the sprinklers. Oh, I love are on also them. how you know while doing <laughs> it's so yeah, fucking funny while you're doing cartwheels around in slow motion. Who's gonna hit you with a bullet doing cartwheels? You know, I mean, yeah, seriously. Well, the the good thing I did love the fact that like apparently they took them like two to th- like what was something like two hours or eight hours between takes in order to get it set up so that you could do it again. Um, which is really cool. But yeah, we don't need to really go into that. There's more, better commentary can be found on that in other places. Um, so yeah, so to, to, to sort of jump forward about him, I actually don't think necessarily uh, that Smith's character is exactly what they, what they knew that they were going to do with him. I'm not sure they actually had that totally planned. Okay, out. okay, but let's put it this way. Let's, let's forget the second two movies ever happened, which I'm sure you'd be happy to do. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> How would you explain Smith Smith's bizarre motivations uh, in the first movie? Like, why is he the one agent you don't, that seems you don't to know. not want it? You don't know that the other agents don't have that. We had no time with them. Yeah, maybe no, Smith no, they special. do. No, you do. You do. But maybe Smith is special, but he maybe, is special. but maybe we also just don't know the internal workings of the other two. I mean, I agree that it seems like Smith is like he's the leader of them, and so he's like a better written program, and maybe he is special. They don't understand um, what he's doing because when they come back in, they say, "Why are you unplugged?" And then when it turns out that they would Neo saves Morpheus, now they can't get the codes to the mainframe. The other two agents basically order Smith to order a strike against. Uh, the Nebuchadnezzar, which would obviously kill Morpheus, but they wouldn't be any closer to getting the Zion mainframe codes. Whereas N- Smith is still trying up until the very end to, you know, to get Morpheus back, basically, or do anything to 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 accelerate his desire to become unplugged and no longer an agent of the system, as he no, says. No, 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 no. But it, but but yeah. once Morpheus gets away, that's not the case anymore. Then he wants just to stop Neo because he's mad that that happened. Right, if he wanted to really make sure Morpheus was still alive, so that he could capture him again or something like that, he, he tried to get to the train station. Away. So the three, yeah, of them, but then he fights Neo. He would no, have let him but get that's back. All, but that's only because Neo had Morpheus go first. As soon as Morpheus disappears into the phone code, that's when the old homeless man turns into the agent. So it was Morpheus. I thought it was also a great callback when Carrie Ann Moss or whatever her name is uh puts her hand on the glass just like she did when the when the when the totally. truck was going to kill her in the beginning totally. that was a really cute callback so um yeah I think they had the seeds uh, that Smith was gonna at least let's put it this way they were at least thinking about what Smith unchained unplugged might be like I think they were they were throwing those ideas around they, maybe they had to maybe right I, I mean I don't know I mean I guess you could just explain you know when Neo it sort of explosively deconstructs Smith at the end. I guess you could explain that as just the way to kill agents, right? That Neo just yeah, discovered totally. the way to kill agents. But the fact yeah. that it was he did it just to Smith and that it was such a weird way to die, and then the fact that it formed an indelible connection between the two of them where they become the one and the zero, See, to, to me, this is so brilliant. That's the thing to me. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you whether you think the one is actually a binary joke. But now that you've mentioned that he's the zero. Like, oh, there's oh, one yeah, there's one zero ones and three zero threes everywhere in the movies. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah there are three zero threes. That's where he dies. But I, I, yeah, yeah. And then he's reborn. This is actually the first, like, you, don't, you die in the Matrix, you don't die in real so life. So this brings happens. me to the cyber brain stuff. So my theory about this, it, let, me, let me put it this way. The only way I can make sense of the three movies well, hold on. Let's just start start here. Right? No, I am. This I is am. when he gets his first Jesus. I, I'm going to start there. I'm going to start there. Okay. okay. Yeah. 
the only way, after watching all three movies and then coming back and rewatching the first, the only way that any of this can make sense from an even somewhat scientific level is cyberbrains. Now, for listeners out there, Adam and I, we were well bonded by senior year of high school. Uh, or sorry, of college, and we lived together senior year of college, which was amazing, and we watched the movies and television seasons of Ghost in the Shell, which is the, you know, I think both artistically greatest and most popular anime of all time, right? Or it's close. It's up there. Yeah, there might be, there might be other ones, but I, I think that the show is, uh, I think the show is, is a masterwork. So, the, so the, the original Ghost in the Shell movie from 95, I believe, was when it came out. Oh, the mangas came out well earlier than that. That The movie was based on posits that in the near future, we will have cyber brains, um, which are basically you know, uh, digital appendages to our brain that will be able to store um, software and information. It, it'll, it'll have like wireless connections, allow you to be connected to the internet and uh, many other people all at once, simultaneously at all times. But if, if your software is not strong enough, you can be hacked by cyber hackers, cyber brain hackers, and taken over. And it goes in the shell. It follows a team of like super elite, you know, secret. Um, uh, you know, like NSA-type figures in the Japanese government in the near future. NSA? No, not NSA. Like, um, uh, I guess it would be like... It's got a SEAL Team 6-style shit. Yeah, but it's domestic. That's what I'm trying to figure out. That's true. It's against domestic CIA? enemies. It would be the FBI, but it would be something... Like but, FBI. Anyways, um, point being... Mm. It really explores, you know, the, the issues that would arise, you know, and not only do some people have cyber brains and some don't, but there's different levels of quality and different levels of control and different levels of skill, right? And so uh, the, uh, the team itself, who's called um, Section 9, the leader uh, and sort of the co-leader, Major Kusungani, is a woman, and... Uh, the chief? No, the sidekick, the big dude with the glasses. Oh, Bato? But, yeah, Bato. Oh, oh, he's a little ocular implant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, okay. point being, some of them have advanced cyber brains, some have partial cyber brains, some are completely cybernetically changed, some are still mostly human or completely human. Like, I think Toga says completely human. He, I, I, he right. has a receiver, I think, for communications, I, I believe, but that's about it. No, no, he's got a, uh, it's something that he wears. Where, point being, uh, the Wachowski brothers, just like they were open about the Baudrillard philosophically being a huge influence on their notion of simulations, Ghost in the Shell, both aesthetically and sort of from a science fiction level, was very, very, very influential for them. And <laughs> yeah, if, if you posit bit. that the, the digital appendages to the brains of the people from the Matrix have wireless capabilities... You can really explain a lot, right? I mean, you can explain how he can control the Sentinels, how he could blow up the Sentinels, how he can be tapped into the Matrix even when he's not plugged in. Because think about it. How do they connect to the Matrix? Well, they get plugged in in the chairs, but that's not how they're connecting. The ship is connecting wirelessly to the Matrix. That's what they're always talking about, broadcast depth. If you get within a couple miles of the surface, you're close enough to the machine world to broadcast wirelessly. So if the ships can broadcast wirelessly, why can't the people broadcast wirelessly? I'm not saying this is how it was, but it does explain things, including his death, to get back to the first Matrix, which is that in the moment of his death, he realized that he could upload his consciousness, essentially, uh, up into the Matrix, uh, away from his body so he wouldn't die, and then was able to kind of reconstruct his body. 
Well, I just think it might. What you can you can come up with also the just the idea that it is in fact you know a a breaking of the limit of when you die in Matrix, you die in real life. It's like, well, no, that's just your mind being ultimately like, well, wh- what makes it real? Your mind makes it real. Well, if your mind is able to get around that, maybe it doesn't make it so real. Maybe if you are if you are able to think a little bit more clearly and sort of break yourself of that level of that rule of the Matrix. But his body dies in the real world. Back. He flatlines. Yeah, well, he has a cardiac arrest, but that doesn't mean his he went brain dead. Right. His heart stopped. Right. That doesn't mean that he's dead. That's that's not death. You know what I mean? So the idea, and then you know, he hears it and something, and he and he's able to sort of restart himself. I I think it's not necessarily only Jesus. I think you can look at it as as part of like another like mental barrier and like breaking one of those. Um, but yeah, okay. But then he's reborn and now he actually has magical powers in there. I don't think it's Bluetooth consciousness leaving and coming back, you know? So just forget the cyber brain thing. I still think there is a scenario under which he could have uploaded, learned how to upload his consciousness into the matrix and then, you know, re-download it into a, his fixed, cause he's not bleeding when he stands up. Dude, but way. that's so, that's so like, yeah. That's just the entire. I mean, yeah, maybe, but it's so completely unsupported by anything. Like the simpler explanation is, you know. All right, we're we're running long, and I want to get some points in. <laughs> I've mostly been letting you run this show, which I've been happy to do. I love hearing your points. And but do you like the reverse Cinderella? I like that. There's the reverse Cinderella thing. That you mean Sleeping there. Beauty? Uh, yes, I do mean Sleeping Beauty. Good point. Right. Uh, yeah, but then reloaded. It's it's regular Sleeping Beauty. Ah, okay, good. Thank, thank God. Uh, and so, this is a perfect so, yeah. bridge. This is a perfect bridge. The kiss. You know what I mean? She kisses him. He wakes up. And uh, All that, right. that shit's great. I'm going to finish by talking about one specific topic. What you got for me? Which is that I think what was lost on audiences, and this isn't the fault completely of audiences, obviously, is that the apparent war that's going on between the two sides is really less important than what the Oracle is trying to maneuver through the whole movie, which Neo is a part of, which is not just reconciliation between two sides, but the creation of a third. And they really don't start doing this until the second movie. Creation of a third what? A a third path, where the line between man and machine wouldn't be so definitive, in that each side maybe could take from the other side um, positive things that they don't, that they don't have, basically emerging um, or, or hybrid existence. Uh, I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain further. Yeah. So I don't remember. This begins with a scene that, on paper, if you had told me this ahead of time and Reloaded, I would have hated, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't like or just thought was stupid, which was a kiss with Persephone, played by Monica Bellucci. Talk about beautiful. Oh, my God. She is so gorgeous where she's going to show them to the keymaker, who they need to get to the source, which is the machine mainframe, where Neo in the second movie thinks that he can end the war by going to the machine mainframe and doing God knows what. Neo hasn't thought that far, and that's part of the whole point, why the Oracle can't tell him everything. And Persephone says, I'll take you there, but I want to kiss, because she is her husband is this big, super creep who's also a program. I should mention they're both programs, who were exiled into the uh, Matrix, and so they t- are taking human form, but they are still programmed. 
am a very pretentious asshole, uh, but brilliant manipulator named the Merovingian. And Neil says, why do you want this? And Persephone says, I once felt about him the way that you and Trinity feel about each other. And at the time, it seems like a throwaway thing. Like, okay, she just wants a kiss. I'm also very fascinated the notion that through the kiss, the pleasure she's receiving is code in code, right? Because she's, she's a program, so she's made of code. She's manifesting herself visually as human, but she's still a program. So it's not a physical kiss in the way Neo kisses Trinity, but that passion basically saying that a human kissing a program, there can be some code, you know, the code of passion, the code of love that is transferred. Don't really put it together. Neo doesn't put it together at the time, and neither do we as the, as, okay. as the watcher. In the beginning of the third movie, Revolutions, and, and actually the first third of, the revolu- of Revolutions I really like. It's, it's the second two thirds I really do not like. And that's just because all the Oracle and philosophical stuff is in the first third. Neo, after having taken down Sentinels wirelessly with his cyber brain or whatever in the end of Reloaded, wakes up in a train station that's a construct that's neither the Matrix nor the real world. And there's this, this beautiful, somewhat creepy, but you know, great-looking Indian family there. Turns out that the husband and wife are programs, and they have a daughter named Sati. And they've arranged for their daughter, Sati, who's, who's very cute, I think, and a great little actress, arranged for her through the Merovingian, the evil Frenchman, to get her to the Oracle. And there's a great extended dialogue with Ramakandra, who's the father, where Neo's saying, why are you doing this? Who is she? And, and they say, you know, she has no purpose. She, she's a product of machine love, basically. If, if the architect or whoever found out that she existed, they, they would delete her because she has no purpose. In our world, it's not enough, he says. So they're smuggling her out. And he says, you know, you look confused. And Neo, Neo says, I've just never heard a machine speak of love. And Ramakandra says, you know, love is a word. Um, what's important is the sort of the, the, uh, the relationship that it transmits. Meaning machines seem to be developing some concepts that are similar to what we would call love, which we would never think machines could do. Basically, machines are starting to act in ways that are outside sort of the mainstream, normal way machines and programs are supposed to act. And that there's more upheaval in their world than we realize. And that the Oracle is not only causing upheaval in the human world, she's also causing upheaval in the machine world. And do you remember in, um, in uh, Reloaded, after um, Seraph tests Neo with the fight, and, and I had to be sure you were the one... <laughs> Neo just goes, mm-hmm. you could have just asked. Um, Neo says, you know, who are you? And he just says, I'm the one that, who protects that which matters most. And then he opens the door and you see the Oracle. And so you think for all of that movie and most of the third movie that he's talking about the Oracle. But what he's really talking about is the Oracle's entire plan, which is to create more beings like Satin, essentially. Because even though the architect at the end of the third movie says you have my word that will end the war. Who do you, what do you think I am? Human, as you pointed out, machines are sort of honorable in a mathematical kind of way. I don't think, uh, I don't think the Oracle buys it. If anything, the humans are going to start another war, and then the machines will be forced to fight back, because that's what humans do after a certain amount of peace. And so she's playing the long game that's lo- way, even way longer than what we've seen. She's already been playing the long game, six manifestations of Neos, that's what, 600 years? And so I think Sati is really what the movie's about, 
and it, yes, technically Satie's a program, but she's very, very, very human and combines the best of both worlds. And we see that she's able to create that sunset at the end, so she's able to have powers within the Matrix, but they're positive powers, and her neo-former relationship. And point being, I think there is, there is a lot going on in terms of, you know, I'm always talking about, like, let's not just get to the singularity and see what happens with AI, you know? Let's try and develop some moral protocols, ethical protocols in these AIs and these machines because we don't know what they're going to be like when they, when they become fully realized. And, and the Matrix obviously takes place many hundreds of years after the singularity went terribly wrong. But then you have someone like the Oracle who is sort of playing a long game of, of bringing the two sides together in a way that I don't think either side thinks is even possible. The way that Neo doesn't think machine love is possible. The way that the architect can never think like a human. Um, so, I don't know. I, that's one of the things I loved about this series. I, I, I bring this up to people. Not a lot of people identify with it. So, I, I just wanted to mention it, though. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before we wrap up here. One thing I think that they don't fall into is trying to pretend that there's no emotions to any of the programs or the machines. Like, they embrace the idea that they can have emotions smith's right. uh smith's whole deal is it, his whole plea is actually an emotional plea right um you know the all those like stupid uh that face that gets made up by sentinels at the end uh has a lot of overwrought over dramatic emotions um they they never try to sort of imply that machines or that programs couldn't have uh impulses or the desire to preserve themselves or anything else like that it's um it's kind of nice that they that they don't uh that they don't uh try to make them all be data you know from fucking star trek right um but at the same time i do like that although that's not that far because data does want to become more human yeah yeah he want but you know but he just wants to become more human he doesn't have emotions well until he gets the emotions chip and yeah i mean yeah but you know what i mean like it you know there that's not really something that they they grapple with here they sort of sidestep that and and let uh smith be frustrated and angry and disgusted and and have other thoughts and be gleeful and you know be kind of self-satisfied all these things they they don't they don't um attempt to make them into automatons they they make them into something that still has motivations and and uh feelings so i when i hear you're talking about them getting closer i think i think it's less about there being a third path and that something's more human or not. But I do think it's more that um, it's more like the crumbling of a, of a fascist uh, organization, you know, like they're ruling over themselves here. And the thing that if you don't have a purpose, you can't live with us. Like you don't, if you don't have a purpose and you shouldn't exist. And it's this kind of, um, it's kind of fascist government. And that she's really just breaking that down i think it has a lot less to do with them becoming more like people and a lot more to do with her just causing a revolution within her own people i'm sorry within like the machine world right them needing to change that political structure and the way that they sort of organize how things work there but i don't see she also says neo coming back by the way she says neo's coming back which is weird oh i the very end hear that sati says will we see neo again and she goes i'm pretty sure we will um, I agree with you, but she can only operate from her end. But she's still able to have these relationships with the humans. What I mean to say is, like, 
the machines already have the things that we think of that machines would lack, right? They already have emotions. They already have love. They already have all these things. That's not them becoming more human. That's actually a natural product of the machines. But what she is working on is, one, yeah, that melding of, like, these things being able to coexist, these human elements and these machine elements. She's fundamentally looking to overhaul the entire structure and function of machine society. And that's sort of what I've always taken her end goal to be. One, to stop the war and keep humans alive, but two, to, um, to sort of make that a reality. No, I agree. I mean, those are her people, so of course that's who she's going to focus on, but she is bringing in human qualities to the sort of upgraded machines or whatever you want to call it, including emotions. Emotions are a human thing. They, they seem, some of the machines seem to, want to desire, seem to desire emotions, seem to desire love. They see that there's positive things about human, but also, really quick, you mentioned, you know, sort of the wink, wink joke at the beginning of the first movie, where you know you're talking about, you know, when Tanks Morpheus says, "How's he doing?" Tanks says, "He's a machine." It, it, this is one of the Wachowski's wink, winks the whole time, which is that Neo acts more like a machine than the machines do. I mean, if you look at all the major program characters, he's so robotic. Yeah. The Merovingian has feeling. Persephone has passion and emotion. Satie and her family are glowing and full of life. I mean, if you just look at that scene in the beginning of Revolutions in the, the train station with the Indian family and Neo, and you didn't know anything about the movie, you say, all right, who are the machines here and who are the humans? You know? Um, and, and, and I think that's part of it. That's a good point. You know? They cast Keanu Reeves for a reason, or at least they asked him to play, because he does... Like, in the dojo fight with Morpheus, he is having fun. He's smiling. He's acting different. Like, he can act. He doesn't... Let's put it this way. Keanu Reeves does not have a huge range, but he does have a wider range than what he shows in The Matrix. They have him be restrained to an extreme degree on purpose. And I think part of that is... And and that's why when 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 you go through and you go back to Persephone wanting to kiss, you're like, wow, this process has been going on probably a while where machines you know, want to come into the matrix so that they can manifest human form and experience human relationships and sexuality. I mean, the guy gets a blowjob. How great is that? Merovingian gets a blowjob. I mean, you know, a, a machine getting a blowjob. It's just, you know, they're, they're, I think just to wrap up philosophically, I think the the philosophy of the second, well, mostly of Reloaded, because the third was really just an action movie, which is part of why I didn't like it. But in Reloaded, at least... The philosophy was so dense and so constant that it was t- it was both too much philosophy for people, but there was also just so many different kinds of ideas and thoughts going on. So many people weren't even there to watch it for that reason. I, I, I totally get why people don't like it. Well, I, I liked that one. Uh, I mean, I actually did like the second movie, especially when I... Um, we probably shouldn't get, even get into it. Um, but especially when I thought that their implication was that... Um, that, that in fact, not that this he is had the best way to close powers. it out. Actually, I think this would All be right, a good way to close cool. it out because I have a thought on this. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, when when I saw the end of the second movie and he was all of a sudden in that in our quote unquote real world, all of a sudden he was able to just to turn off the sentinels and stop them. This was this was a big effort, and he passes out and can't. Uh, it doesn't stay awake. But my thought was that, oh my god, it's another Matrix. They never really. They never really left. This is not an, you know, right now they're sort of implying that there's another system of control through this systemic anomaly thing. You know, you'd already seen it by that point and that, but I've always thought to myself, it makes no sense. They could just kill the people. There's no reason for them to even allow the systemic anomaly to exist. What if instead 
this is actually a second round of the Matrix where they just put people that reject the first round. But this is one that is so much more suffering, so much more brutal that we can actually accept it. You know, they said they were, you know, Smith was saying humanity is defining itself by its suffering. Well, there's there's nothing that's more suffering than that world that they're in. And so I thought it was this implication that they had just discovered that this second world was also plugged in and fake and that the real reality was somewhere else entirely. And that I thought was amazing. And that's why I love that second movie until I saw the third one. And then I was like, oh, God, they really just made him magic? He's magic now? Fuck. In the aftermath of that movie, and seeing the Animatrix, which also gave some clues that the Matrix within the Matrix thing might be the case. Oh, by the way, final episode mm-hmm. of Animatrix, Matriculated, remember, where they turned oh. the robot? Yes. That's machine that's love beautiful. there, dude. That's another example. Yeah, he, I'm telling he falls you. And in that's love. Why, and that's why I think it's not just a human he thing. He rapes her. It was just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Well, is that well, what happens? It, well, he sort of away? emotionally... Like, he, she plugs... She's dead, essentially. And she, but she's alive enough that the, the machine, who's now been turned good, plugs her in, back in because he wants to have a love relationship with her. And she's just so horrified that she's basically able to transubstantiate out of the, uh, out of the construct and just die. And there's that image of her... And the robot with sitting there with the plugs in the back of their head. Anyways, but, and, and with my disappointment with the revolutions, I initially attributed it to, well, they should have just gone with the Matrix within the Matrix theory. Just to recap for those listeners, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's that, you know, the, the idea that we'd find out at the end of the second movie that they thought they were out of the Matrix, but they were really just in another level of Matrix. I, there are a number of reasons I'm glad that this was not the case looking back on it. And I think, really, oh yeah, I think the systemic anomaly is way more interesting. Not the, not the specific mechanism of the anomaly, but the notion that the fact that they're able to control Zion without it being in another level of the Matrix makes it that much more horrifying. Because if, if Zion were just another level of the Matrix, then of course the machines could, could control it. But the fact that they're able to, by creating a fake messiah complex and by creating a fake history and all of these things, I think is absolutely brilliant. And then when I saw Inception, where it was just dreams within dreams within dreams, I went, oh my god, I'm so glad the Matrix didn't do this. I am so glad. Maybe the systemic anomaly thing makes sense, or, or, or you like it or you don't, but goddamn, the more, that's the one thing I keep coming back to. I, I think I, I find way more subtle and interesting than just being another label of Matrix. But, and this is what I was going to before, and I'll finish with these two final points. Because if it was a Matrix within a Matrix, we would never know when we were outside of the Matrix, right? It could be Inception, just, just level after level after level. So there would be that. But that's the Wachowski's whole point, as I keep talking about, is that we are living in a simulation now, and we're not plugged into the Matrix. We're living in a number of simulations. We're not directly connected to reality for many, many, many reasons. And that's why at the very end, when, you know, Morpheus looks up and he goes, is this real? That line is amazing for his character because he spent the entire trilogy thinking he knew what was real and what wasn't. In that moment, he's acknowledging he has no idea. And that's what's great. It still could be a Matrix within the Matrix. You, you really, there's no logical inconsistency with watching the three movies and still being like, eh, yeah, this is just another type of Matrix. Really. I mean, it's, it's always possible, especially because we could be in the Matrix now, talking about the Matrix within the Matrix theory. So 
It doesn't rule it out. I just thought it was way more subtle. Because think about it. You could have the architect just reveal that there's two matrices. Or give that amazing long speech where he says ergo a lot and stuff. It talks about the systemic anomaly. And just the whole idea that there would be a tiny fraction of people who would just reject the matrix instinctively really speaks to me. And I think it's both cool and that there would be a couple people out there that would do so. But it's also a very cynical view of humanity that 99.999% would accept it, even if given the choice on a subconscious level, which I love the subconscious choice thing as well. I love it. I love everything with the Oracle and the Architect. I think it's great. My biggest complaint with Revolutions is that it just didn't take it further. They could, you know, they could have gone way further. You know? And the, the, the Trinity death scene is one of the worst scenes of any movie ever. That, that was yeah. where Revolutions really lost me. It, I had already been lost by that point, other than the, the Jada Pinkett uh, Morpheus stuff you know, with the hovercraft, which, by the way, the hovercraft in the third movie look amazing. Yeah, it's great. So good. Great. So let's give a, just, uh, let's give a, few, a few props here and to close out on, on, a, on a positive note, although you have to respond to what I just said as well. I, I, I talk no, about I a lot it. about my uh, uh, people out there. Uh, the architect stuff, the systemic anomaly, I talk all about a lot in the Reloaded commentary. So um, if you, if you my, have a chance my to check only, that out. Yeah, my only problems with them, I think, is that um, they really narratively stop things dead. Between that and then him being at that way station, I mean, you know, where he's talking to the, to well, the, the family. You're saying like, the architect stopped things dead? It, to 99% yeah. of watchers, I totally agree. But I his performance and the writing, and I, see, the thing is, I was coming in with, with a philosophical mindset already, and so I didn't get it all. Why, why I didn't get it all at first, I was so in at that point. I love the, the 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 misdirection there. I didn't see that coming at all, but I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just mean you know. Remember how we talked about the fact that uh, there's a big long scene at the Council of Elrond uh, in the book that's actually like just a bunch of exposition, and what they did instead in the movie was weave it into other parts of the movie in order to make sure that things don't like remain still for too long i think that could have happened here a little bit more i just think they spent too much time in the architect and then in the next movie with the kid in the train station i mean that was painful like that that i have a real hard yeah, time see, I, I didn't love it when i first saw it but on repeat viewings it's actually one of my favorite parts of that movie to me, to me, that's the only kind of stuff where it's like, I love that those things, but it's so much better because in the first one, they always make sure that they're weaving those things into much more dynamic, flowing things that keep everyone's attention and keep everybody sort of in the mix. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying, I'm not saying yeah. I would have made that choice in terms of how they did it. I'm just saying as, a, as someone who rewatches it for the philosophy more than the action, I appreciated that after a few viewings. Yeah. But, yeah, but it I, took I can, me a while. See, see now, you know, now I know so much more about AI, and I've seen so many more AI things. Remember, we hadn't watched Ghost in the Shell yet at this point. I didn't even know what Ghost in the Shell was about. So the idea that there'd be this line between man and machine that never really occurred to me at this level. I just thought that was so fascinating, and now I can sort of understand more. My complaint would be that there should have been more of that, but just done better in in, in the revolutions. Well, and, and there really wasn't much of a line between man and machine that ever really got crossed. I mean, Neo's kind of the closest thing, but there was, you know, there wasn't any, uh, the whole Ghost in the Shell thing is actually like a physical melding of the two. Um, and that obviously was devoid of this, but I, I don't think that that hurts it. It's just, uh, I don't think the melding was really ever that much. It's sort of the machine just kind of sure. had human emotional characteristics. Anyway, yeah, man. I mean, uh, uh, I still think that the uh, the first movie as a standalone would be stronger than the three together. 
Um, well, see, I don't see a contradiction. I would say if you just like the first movie, just watch it. Sometimes I'll do that. I mean, for me, sometimes I'll just watch Reloaded, but for sure I'll sometimes just watch Matrix. I'll, let's put it this way. I never just watch Revolutions. I'll watch Revolutions right. if I watch the first two, and I'm like, all right, fuck it. I want to see Jada Pickett-Smith kicking some ass. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. And just a very quick side note, her and Morpheus's like love story is so convincing. They have great chemistry. And I'll just leave with this for myself. I love the first movie, but there are so many great character additions from Zion in the second and third movies. For me, some of those relationships are worth it almost by themselves because the Neo-Trinity love story gets stale almost immediately, mostly because of Keanu Reeves, and so they have other they have stuff. They have no chemistry. But no, it's, but it's no Keanu Reeves. It's not, it's not those. I don't think any woman would have chemistry in that situation. No, actually, I'm not totally sure. I'm not totally sure. I, also, I don't think, I think Liv Tyler becomes... would have chemistry in that situation. Um. Uh, well, I don't know, but I guess I think also part of it is that like it's a little bit more interesting when it's quiet and they're just kind of right, like, which is why the long the death one. made no sense. It's subtle, exactly. Where, versus, yes. but then when, like when it has to get into this like very like twelve year old like fucking thing that they have to get into, and it's just like yeah. What you mean like, during the spice orgy? Yeah, during the spice orgy, and then they're just like fucking on some velvet, yeah, yeah. and it's just like I like that, yeah, dude. You know, like, Keanu Reeves, I know, o face, I know you like the Keanu's O face gross. in that is amazing. It's he disgusting. like blinks, he like blinks with his mouth open, and he's sweating. Not it's good. hilarious. Not good. It's gross uh, and it's not realistic. She's great. I, I think Carrie Ann Moss does everything possible to try and make that work. It's I don't blame it on her. I at know, all. but it's it's this kind of thing where it's like they are. Like they're like, we need to sex this up, and I feel like this happens a lot in the second movie, where like there's they too just much kissing. Like they desperately need to make things everything about sex. We only see them have sex once. I know, but then there's a giant spice orgy, and it's like that's the whole where we thing see them have sex. Vingian and her. I I know, but then the actual like orgy going on beneath them at the same time, the uh, sexuality gets put into a really simplistic dumb place both for the merovingian his wife this and that and it is so much more like careful and thoughtful in the first movie and i kind of wish they it's more catholic that's for sure it just it just was really i just thought it was very ham-fisted and i kind of feel like that's really what ruined their relationship is them trying to make it into this hot and heavy sex thing instead of it being something else um and their natural chemistry was something that was different than, than those what they were trying to do for those scenes. You know what I mean? I'm not going to defend all of this, but they had to have sex at least once, and the Spice Orgy was the perfect place to do it. It was filmed great in that cavern with their backs. But it doesn't... It, first of all, you don't have to show them actually having sex. You don't have to show them dropping their shit and just, like, making out in an elevator. Like, that does not fit their characters at all. Yeah, I don't like not the making out they the are. You know, it's just, like, they're, they're over... They're trying to, like, compensate for the fact that their chemistry is actually, like... A very it's a little bit cold but it's it's not not there in the first movie but it's right. like it's it's calm right and it's almost a more developed relationship in some ways in the first one where things are not so like frenetic and desperate they're a lot more like right no it's like rational and actually like yeah. secure it's like um, and, um for example to that point back to the persephone kiss scene um where persephone's like i just want to sample it and then trinity takes out her gun and goes why don't you sample this which I love, and then and Morpheus just goes Trinity, and she puts it away. And well, also because like that doesn't fit her character either. Oh, it totally like, does. To be would, defensive of him, oh, absolutely. I, I love. That. I don't. I don't think so. But I hold think, on, like, I'm her not character even isn't that hot headed. All right, let me finish the point. Which is that 
She says that line, which makes me laugh every time. And then she puts the gun away, and they're all wearing sunglasses, so they're having to convey this without eyes. And when Neo realizes that he has no choice but to do it, he looks at Carrie Ann Moss, and she looks at him, and there's a look between them that we don't even really see because we can't see their eyes, but it just communicates. She's saying to him, I really hate that you have to do this, but I totally get why, and you have my permission to do it. Like, he wasn't going to do it without her permission, but they didn't have to say one word. And that's what—that's the great part of the relationship, I agree. And that's why the long, like, ten-minute, kiss me, Neo, kiss me one last time. I mean, I, I, even now, I, like, fast-forward through it. I can't even watch it. It's horrible. And the way she dies... It's really painful. The practical effects of her death look terrible. Terrible. Yeah, it, it was really badly executed. Yeah, so... It was what, really badly executed. You know, I mean, obviously, the quality of the movies goes in forward order. Pretty clear. You know, I think Tuck would probably say the biggest jump in quality loss was between first and second. I would say no. it's between second no, and I third. No, would, I wouldn't even say that. I, I would agree with you between second and oh, third. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the third one is really where shit just goes off the rails. Like, things change in the second, and I'm not always on board with some of their art direction and other changes. Right. But then, like, the third, it, it just falls the fuck apart. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but it's just, you know, it's one of those third movies. If you're going to watch the trilogy, sometimes you just got to do it. Good news is, funny. Matrix movies are only I, two hours a piece, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's much easier to watch. Did I tell you that that uh, Jenna's mom just saw this uh, for the first time, like over the holidays? So what? She had never seen the Matrix, and she'd never seen any of the three movies. And we sort of were back in Massachusetts, we we're hanging out, and we, she watches the first one, and she's like, "Holy shit! Like this is this is a great movie. Yeah. Let's put on the second one." Oh god! And she watches the second one, and she's like. I don't know if I like this one yeah, very much. Of course. I, don't think. I was like, yeah, I know, dude. I'm sorry. I really shouldn't have gotten you the trilogy, or we shouldn't have gotten you the trilogy. And she's like, mm. and she's like, well, I have to see how it ends. And I was like, yeah, you kind of shouldn't, though. She's like, I have to see how it ends. And she watched the third one. She's like, I wish I hadn't watched the third one. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Like, yep. Totally. If you just watch, like, I'm not crazy. If you just watch the first two and then the Animatrix, you're in good shape. Um, oh, so, but I will I like say this, idea. and then we got to sign off here, which is that. The Matrix in general, but Reloaded in particular, has the most creative, complex, and well-executed hand-to-hand fighting of any movies ever. And I don't even know who's a close second. I don't. Because as you pointed out, it's not just that there's a million guys fighting, but the camera will stay on for long periods. I mean, there are parts of the Smith fight where you obviously can tell it's CGI, but there's parts where like, where he, where he's on the ground and he does like a spinning... Well, Twirling when flip kick. With stunt doubles. When they're doing it with the stunt doubles, it's fantastic. Like I actually love all the stuff that they're doing when they have stunt doubles in there, and it's like the physical stuff because they have great coordination and they're having to do it without showing you the, sure. the guys' sure. faces. Right. It's really well executed. Right. And and they do really overlay well Keanu Reeves' face on his CGI um, person. I think actually better. Yeah, but I think it looks better than Legolas' face. Um, Maybe. It's all wrist and clothing with him. Right. It's just they didn't have the, the technology to do it. Right. Yet. Well, also, Keanu Reeves has a more easily replicable face, computer-wise, I think, than Orlando Bloom, perhaps. But anyways... Only that he has sunglasses instead of eyeballs. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. If you have sunglasses, a black flowing rub, you can have stunt doubles and CGI doubles. And my bigger point is that even when it does go CGI... Now you can. Right. Even when it does <laughs> go CGI, 
the the choreography, if you will, is fantastic. And so my problem is like I just don't like hand to hand fighting in most movies because it just doesn't. It's all because what they do, even in like the Bourne movies and stuff, it's just a lot of choppy camera movement and a lot of quick edits. And you know, remember how you mentioned in the Fellowship how they cut away from action too quickly. Yeah, yeah, all the time. The, and, and, but they learn their lesson. In the second two movies, they hold on in a little bit more. Most movies cut away from action so quickly because they don't have the desire or the confidence to, to execute it. And so, well, really, what they don't have is a choreographer. They don't have the time or the or the um, or the budget to actually go to the choreographer and do long shots, shots that are longer than like three to four seconds. Yep. I mean, a lot of times you'll see action in Lord of the Rings, and it's like it's, a lot of the cuts are under a second. Right. Uh, it's you know that's a little too much. Matrix, Matrix here, will I mean, hold four, five, six, seven seconds at times. Well, watch watch that watch that that kung fu fight scene again. It's it's masterfully done. Oh, it's uh, every really well shot. Done. Well, that's what I talk about in my commentary, and this will be a nice way to end and plug my commentaries. So I'm going to be yeah, re- plug it. I'm going to be releasing this podcast with Mr. Tuck as Bizzlecast. I think. 18, lucky number 18 for those of us from the tribe. You know why 18 is a lucky number. It stands for chai, which means life. And we are both full of life. And so that is great. This will be 18. And then, I don't know what order. Maybe 19, 20, 21 will be the Matrix movies. But in the first Matrix, during that fight that you love so much, I say, this isn't as cool or exciting in rewatches as the, rev- the reloaded ones are. However, it's perfect. There's no flaws, it, you know. It, from a minimalist perfection standpoint, it's flawless, and so I love yeah. to watch it for that reason. And very quickly, I did this. So I love Morpheus does the pragmatist, never works. He tries it against Neo during that first fight, and he crashes through the ground as Neo rolls away. Then, when he's fighting the agent on the top of the truck during the highway chase and reloaded, he tries to pragmatist, and he jumps so high, the guy, easy, the agent, easily gets out of the way. But then he finally gets it on the third try. A minute after that happens, he gets pushed off the truck. That's Niobe. Ca- catches him on the car. She drives out in front. She's such a badass. And she just goes, kick his ass. And Morpheus, with the agent thinking he's dead, jumps doing the full fucking prank mantis off of Niobe's car. Just takes out the agent. Just shoots him like, you know, 100 feet back into someone else's car. So he finally got the praying man just to work. I love hand-to-hand combat. Crouching Tiger is really the only other movie that is comparable to me. Um, and, uh, you know, Captain America the Winter Soldier, it was probably the best since The Matrix in terms of hand-to-hand. That hand. Oh, that's great. See, Winter Soldier, it, it's a very, very dark movie. It's not, I mean, he's the only one with superheroes the whole movie. It's just him fighting tons of guys with guns and doing ridiculous shield throws and karate moves and shit like that. It's pretty awesome. But it's just great choreography. They're the same people who did the choreography for the Daredevil Daredevil series. But anyways, neither here nor there. Well, thank you for doing this, sir. I'm glad you, you took the reins on this. It was nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, every once in a while you got to come correct. And um, you guys have any podcasts coming out soon? Oh, we do have one coming out soon. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let it uh, – I'll let – I'll let us we'll just do it. Plug. Basically, we sound off on uh, on uh, Apple Music. I got that wonderful podcast known as Waste of Time Machine that we record with my buddy Dave All. We are two adorable friends. We waste your time, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it. If you like some tech stuff, we talk about tech stuff, but it's a lot of it's just uh, just basic life shit and two 
idiots who uh, like each other talking about you know bullshitting and it's a, you know what? it's a show about nothing, Jesse. How do you like that? <laughs> Sounds familiar, like my that? friend. It's a show about nothing. Yeah. Less I, I just thought of that. Yeah. I just came. I just came up, up yeah. on that on the top of my dome. Hey, no, it's always the best shows. Always the best podcasts about nothing. Cool. So check out a Waste of Time Machine online. Subscribe. Also subscribe to the Bizzlecast. We are very happy to have Adam here again. Thanks, bro. I will come back time and time again. I am the glutton for punishment. (laughs) Okay. All right, people. Thanks for being with us. We are out.